Lots of cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the backseat of my 60 Chevy Working on mysteries without any clues Working on a night move 720 WGN, it is Dane here with you high atop Chicago in the Skyline studio, and uh, I'll be with you until 4 a.m. tonight, and we have got a great uh, eclectic blend, but a great show on tap for you. No pun intended. We're going to talk a little bit about the world of food and wine. We're going to talk a little racing. We're going to talk a little comedy. We are going to highlight some of the great things that are happening out there, and excited to have you all on board uh, for that as well. Murr from uh, Practical Jokers is going to be on with us. We're going to have uh, the author of the book, the new one about John Andretti. He will be with us, Indianapolis Motor Speedway historian. Uh, Donald Davidson is going to be with us as well. Dr. Ernst Lohsen is going to be calling us from the Moselle region, region of Germany to talk a little bit about the wines that they have going on there. And Scotty Johnson is going to be joining us, barbecue world champion. Uh, we'll be on with us. Stay tuned for that coming up. Without further ado, Excited. Always excited whenever I can have this guy on the line. He is uh, one of the leading voices in the world of wine, best-selling author, headlining food and wine personality, and now he has become the Don King of the wine cast with his blockbuster <laughs> battle coming up. The one only Mark Oldman. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here, Dane. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is. It's great to have you. Anytime there's an opportunity to get a chance to talk to you, I feel that we are doing a service for the public and a service for the <laughs> listeners. You know, outside of your normal, I don't want to say comfort zone because you're comfortable in all kind of aspects and areas of what you do to be, to be able to kind of break down uh, and give people a little bit more Mark Oldman in another setting, I think is really cool. We're going to have an opportunity to have a little bit of an extended conversation. I think we should take advantage of it. And so, so many people see what it is that you do on the book side. You know, there may be a paragraph or two on the front flap of the book, or of course they enjoy you headlining uh, places like the classic at Aspen or New York City wine and food or any of those things. And they get to have that entertainment side of Mark Oldman. They get to enjoy that. But yeah, I always wonder, and I always wonder if people wondered, like what makes what makes a Mark Oldman? You've always been one of those great ambassadors, kind of demystifying wine, making it more approachable. You're one of those guys that, you know, you got to know all the rules before you can break them. But, but Ooh, you're yeah. a humble guy too. And, and for the listeners, this is a guy who's, I think you're a three-time Stanford grad, right? And I think that you are the founder of the Stanford Wine Circle. And so for those people who wonder how you go from point A to point Mark Oldman, <laughs> talk a little bit about how, how you either came into the world of wine or fell in love with wine. How did that connection start? Well, you know, it reminds me of, I, I had a very old professor once. She was so cool. She was 95. She taught me about Campari's, and she also taught me about Australian literature. So, she, she was a great woman, and she... In late in life, wrote a book on the English author, we won't even mention, minor English author, but it was on the front page of the New York Times book review. And so she had this great success late in life, but she used a line about the author that said, the author never zigged or zagged more. And so I think that leads to a fun and rewarding life, that you need to zig, you need to zag, you need to have faith that the dots will connect. Uh, and sometimes just pursue your passion and then make it all make sense later. So I, I guess, you know, what some people get into wine to lord it over others. 
and to have something persnickety and kind of snobby. And then other people, and, and these are the people I like to hang out with, are just trying to get a really delicious drink and can help people figure out a framework to find the wine that tastes really good to them. So, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I, you know, I grew up listening to Van Halen. And, uh, you know, uh, by the way, I love uh, Impractical Jokers. I'll be, it's getting me through the pandemic. I know that you have, what um, um, would be the, the very thin guy on tonight? <laughs> I forgot his name. What's his name? James S. Murray, of course. La, 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 la. So Murr is what he goes with. Murr. Yeah, I love Murr. And I love these guys. And so, you know, I have a great appreciation for just, you know, fun stuff. And uh, at the same time, I have tasted all the expensive wines. And I have uh, been around all the experts and taken... Great, great notes. And I'd like to combine the two together because I want what I do in wine. In, like, for example, you mentioned uh, race car driving. I want the Mark Oldman of, like, racing to give me the inside scoop. That's something I would love to learn about. But we don't have time, unfortunately, in this all-too-short life to make, you know, to have, like, ten hobbies. So I, I need the cheat sheet to a lot of things I know I would be interested in. I guess that's part of your role, Dane. You bring us these kind of um, glimpses into worlds, and you help us figure out if this could be more than just a passing passion. You know? what I, but I think having the ability to kind of lead people there and say, come on, you know, this is a safe space and I can take you there. It, I think it's important. Did you feel, you know, based on, on the educational side, obviously, you know, there are some yeah. people who would lord that over others. That's something that you would never bring up in a normal setting, but it is something I think that sets you apart. And then, of course, you know, having an affinity for Van Halen and maybe not the most highbrow comedy <laughs> out there for those familiar with the Jokers. Do you feel like you need to be even even maybe more on your game because of these other kind of aspects of your personality that you're proud of, right? That aren't, that are maybe more pedestrian as far as that goes. You have to be more on your game and be sharper, maybe with the wit, maybe with the humor when it comes to the wine knowledge. You're, you're so right. If you take the, because I think a lot of us in general are being afraid of, uh, or, you know, it's the imposter uh, syndrome. We're of being, we're afraid that we're going to be, Unmasked in whatever field you're in, as a fraud. I think that's just a natural human emotion, unless you're sociopathic. And, you know, but that, that, that's something else. But I think that a lot of wine people are afraid to loosen up around wine because they're afraid that someone's going to call them on one of the a million micro details in wine. So you're absolutely right. I'll never forget when I first started teaching about wine, I, I had approached one of the early wine bars in New York City. It's called the Soho Kitchen and Bar. It no longer exists, but I approached the owner, and I had learned a lot about wine at college. So I'm like, you know, can I teach a wine class in your empty cabaret room upstairs? Um, I'll do it. I'll teach it. I'll market it. You provide the people, and I'll select the wine from your list, and we'll split the profits. And we were busy uh, we had people coming. I called it the Soho Anti-Snob Wine Seminar. <laughs> and 
people were coming from day one, but I'll tell you, there's nothing like having to teach a room full of New Yorkers. And by the way, my virtual wine tastings now, my wine tastings online called are, are um, 20 bucks a shot. But back then, this was 1992, here in New York City, they were $88. Of course, that included the, the wine and all that. But there's nothing like a New Yorker who's paid $88 and a baby-faced recent college grad teaching them wine to make sure you were on top of your game. Because these people wanted their money's worth. And I never forgot that. You know, I know you're really in a rock and roll, but uh, another, uh, you know, similar sentiment is Getty Lee of Rush talked about uh, how when they first went on tour with Kiss, um, it was really important for Rush to be the opening uh, act for Kiss because Kiss, love them or hate them, they always gave the audience their money's work. And Rush took that to heart. And that's what they learned from Kiss. So I learned early on, you have to treat every event as if you're being judged. Your whole reputation rides on that one event. So I, so you know, it's important for me to give people their money's worth. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, too. We're going to take a break. And we come back, we'll have more uh, with Mark Oldman. And, and building in what it is, it's one thing to get the knowledge, get your money's worth, and feel like you come out of it a better person. $88 better, $20 better. But to go from fear to fun, where you are taking not only all of that important information on the wine side, but building in the entertainment side, which I think had not been mm-hmm. done before. I think unprecedented. Keep it here. Uh, we'll have more with Mark Oldman. It's staying on 720 WGN. WGN. It is Dane here with you high atop Chicago Skyline Studio. And uh, just to let people know, coming up next week, Nick DiGilio is going to be back. And he'll be back with us. So excited for that. And we'll be here until 4 a.m. with you. And uh, on the line with us now, we've got, uh, we've got again, one of the leading voices in uh, the world of wine. But I think one of the transcendent ones as well. There are a lot of people out there now that are trying to make wine more approachable or, or maybe demystify it or, or you know, make it not so scary. But there's nobody who has done kind of the extra work, kind of transcending two different levels to not only make it to where you're not afraid, but you're having a great time and building in that whole entertainment side of it, whether it's the gold LeMay jackets, uh, reminiscent of, let's say, Elvis are bringing in sort of the ACDC <laughs> Angus. Fun. Mark Oldman does all of that stuff. So, Mark, at what point when it came into uh, and you talk about some of those early kind of tough crowds that you had to work through, you had to know your stuff, where you became comfortable enough with it to say, you know what, we want to give people more than what they would expect from a wine seminar where they're going to learn from, you know, some of the best information from some of the best. You know, we want to kind of we want to rock these people. We want to kind of knock their socks off when you wanted to build in the entertainment side. Exactly. Uh, and and you used a great quote. You know, first you got to know the rules so you can then break him. And I think that was Pablo Picasso who said that. And so first I ended up studying wine like my life depended on it because I had what I call Mr. Wolf. So I had these crowds of thirsty New Yorkers paying $88 a shot in 1991. And I looked 
I didn't look like a, a bearded wine expert, you know, an old bearded uh, uh, goat of a wine expert. And uh, so I really, you know, people had low expectations. So I, I over-prepared. And I really, really learned wine that way. And then the years went by, and then I started doing these festivals. And, you know, it's like when you've got 300 people in a room, you have to do more than talk about the sugar content in wine or malolactic fermentation. You have to sit back and think, okay, how can I deliver? How can I, not sugarcoat, but how can I deliver great little nuggets of knowledge but keep people's attention make them laugh. I mean, it's it's kind of like the smell test. Again, not to uh, talk too much about uh, your improbable or not improbable joker, impractical jokers. <laughs> yes. But, like, I, I find myself laughing spontaneously at that. And it's that there's nothing more organic and nothing that bonds me to a piece of media or entertainment or to a professor than that sort of like very natural, authentic, organic, you know, uh, uh, brilliance, really. And and that I mean, I'm not saying I'm brilliant, but what what I'm trying to do is first take the basics and then figure out well how do we zest it up so people will never forget certain points about wine. So as just you said, you should have been a psychologist, Dane, because <laughs> it's. It's that transcendent, it's those extra little steps you go. And why do I bother, you might ask? I was just telling someone today, like, you know, people would show up, you know, if I didn't put so much into these things. But that, I think, is my crazy genetic makeup. I I think the stars, the wires got crossed, and I just have to give it my all each time. It's, It's just the way I'm built. You don't want to say sugar coat, but maybe candy coat it, coated in like maybe nougat or some kind of uh, rice crispy, <laughs> chocolatey goodness or whatever. But kind of building in that that kind of stuff. And I think once people and maybe if you could fill us in, let the listeners know. Of course, we're talking with uh, with wine expert, author, uh, personality, Mark Oldman. What was the first thing that you did? Because that is a little bit of a that is a little bit of a risk. Because as you mentioned, maybe maybe visually you didn't have the tweed coat with like the leather patches, you know, or any of that exactly. stuff. That started off, you already weren't walking like the duck that they figured they needed to see and learn from. At what point did you say, you know what, let's have a little fun with this? Was was it like at what part did you build in? Because now, and you've sort of mentioned it, is there yeah. a little bit of pressure? Because now people expect that from you and you've got to do bigger and better. But as far as building in the entertainment, was it just the sense of humor? Is that how it started? What did you do? Yeah, well, that's exactly it. At first, I felt like just being myself. And my intense desire for people to learn, and maybe I was quoting Curb Your Enthusiasm, a lot of it's stream of consciousness. I'll have, or, you know, speaking of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I've read about how that show works, and a lot of the great kind of like lightly scripted shows, there are certain points they need to hit, but they don't know how they're going to get from point A to point B to point C. So I became comfortable enough with my own knowledge, and the crowds at these uh, wine festivals, I felt like they started coming back to see me year after year. And that gave me the confidence to really, what do the jazz musicians do? To kind of improvise a little bit. And then when that started working, I'm like, you know what? It, 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 now I'm really going to give them a show. So 
Um, for example, a few years ago, I did um, wines that were criminally good. There's 300 <laughs> people at Aspen. I, I ordered away, Dane. I ordered it. There are prison supply shops. Who knew this existed? So I ordered away for the black and white stripe. See, I thought it was all Guantanamo orange these days. But no, there are still, you know, like the, the chain cl- gang. Yeah, the classics. The classics. So I ordered that, and um, everything was like penitentiary themed, and these wines were some of the best in, in the world. And then one of my very uh, active students, he reached out a week before the class, and he's like, "Is there any way I can help you out?" And I'm like, "Well, actually, um, would you dress up as a police officer and?" <laughs> Uh, this was in Aspen at the Aspen Classic, and he went down to the police house, asked to borrow their uniform. Only in a small, like, relatively safe town like Aspen would the officers allow him to borrow one of their uniforms. Oh and, I could never see that happening anywhere. Any- <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not in New York. And And so how we started the seminar and this was a big risk so so 300 people pile into the tent and there's a lot of anticipation and i have him go up and make an announcement sorry uh i hate to tell you this but uh mark oldman has been arrested and he's currently in the aspen jail right now and and he can't make it and then i had him leave the stage and then people were like murmuring, and then he brought me back on the stage in handcuffs, and then we took the handcuffs off, and I started the show. Oh, <laughs> oh man! We had all, all all sorts of things to make it memorable for people. Well, and there's always some great themes too, and I think that's where a little bit of the idea happens. So you're not just necessarily picking out a region or picking out here, or even picking out things that I think would be in that team photo of things that people would want to learn about. You always build in a cool and fun angle because, and I think, you know, for some of those great people out there that are, have succeeded uh, at maybe at menu writing, right? You read the menu and you automatically, it's just, it's just words, but it makes you want it. It makes you be like, wow, that sounds really awesome. And that is a talent and a gift. And so to come up with some of these shows and even some of the topics for the wines, you know, you know, you're going to get, you know, at that level. And for the listeners who haven't been out to the classic at Aspen, it is, it is sort of the, the pinnacle of the food and wine experience. And so anything that you get, whether you're learning, knife skills from a Jacques Pepin or you're or you're out there yes. with you know stars of your favorite television shows everything is a very elevated situation you're learning great stuff but when you when you have it written out where you're thinking of some of these themes that are just automatically attractions in and of themselves exactly I you know for example one theme I did uh, hard to say easy to drink and this was years ago and we're not allowed to have uh, audio visual because they need to uh, build the uh, tents and break them down. Not the actual tents, but the stuff, the tables inside the tents. So you can't actually, and these are all temporary. Uh, so I brought a projector once, and I don't know if you remember, you're, you're probably too young to remember, but on the old electric company, when Morgan, from the shadow of Morgan Freeman, they were showing, it was two shadows, and they showed you how to pronounce. It was like Gewurz, Treminer, Gewurz, Treminer. And I actually had a graphic artist. I brought a projector and had a graphic artist 
uh, make these visual pronunciations, but to famous wines that was pr- uh, uh, presented. And I think to this day, people remember now that it's Moet. It's not Moet because Moet and Chandon, it's Dutch, or the name is originally Dutch in origin, or Terrier Jouet, not Jouet. So it's these little educational tricks that don't seem like education. Those are the things I respond that's to and I, I, I remember. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's we all think of, uh, at least many of us do, and I think they've come back with it now. Like Schoolhouse Rock, you, you're watching a cartoon, you're being entertained, yes. and in the end, you know what a conjunction is, right? So that's the way that it goes. <laughs> We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we have transcended to yet another level on the entertainment side, and Mark has taken the cutting-edge technology that exists and is available to all of us today, and not only created the virtual... Uh, wine experiences that he does on a weekly basis, but something that is, I think, um, a, a battle for the ages, right? And we're going to talk about that when we come back. It's a War of the Roses, uh, Celebrity Deathmatch. We've got Mark Oldman on Quick Break. It's Dane here, 720 WGN. I love the bumpers. Tom Hush is doing a great job. He is there in the booth, 720 uh, WGN. It is Dane here with you high atop Chicago. And and on the line with us, we've got uh, one of the leading voices uh, in the world of wine. You can also, I think, describe him as unstoppable, irrepressible. It is the one and only Mark Oldman. Mark, welcome back. Thank you. Just this... By the way, Dane, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. No. But I was just I was just listening. This is so cool. This is late night, and you're a DJ. But uh, are you familiar with the concept of the late night DJ voice? Uh, I don't know. Would it be like lower and more breathy? Uh, you know, exactly. Sounds. I mean, I, I, you got to go to maybe there's a separate kind of, uh, I don't know. We'll, Tom and I will work on it during the break. Maybe there's some sort of button he can push that'll make me sound. Well, you sound pretty good. I, you're, you're halfway there, but this, he, he's a former FBI negotiator. You could watch him on YouTube. I forgot his oh, name. Oh, okay. But he talks about how the key to negotiating with people is the late night DJ voice. So I, I'm just excited that we're like in the late night DJ zone right now. Let's just throw that out there. All right, we're gonna try one. Tom's got a got a uh, a thing like that. Are you ready? Go ahead, Tom. Oh yeah, luscious hushes, baby. <laughs> That's how you, that's, that's what you awesome. do. <laughs> yeah, when you've got the, your potential either terrorists or criminals, you got to talk them down, talk them out, whatever. You just you flatter them. Yeah. Luscious baby, that's what you do. Well, so for all those people that think they're missing out on Mark Oldman because of the pandemic, they can't see him at any of their favorite events. They can always see him at markoldman.com. And then, of course, you're you're hearing him right now, 38 states in Canada, and then people are seeing you from all over the world on your kind of virtual uh, seminars and experiences that you're doing. Talk a little bit about that before we get into this blockbuster thing that's happening coming up. Yeah, so I've uh, now, to relieve the pandemic blues, I'm doing these virtual events at markoldman.com. It's really easy to do. Uh, Some of them are free and others are priced very conservatively because I know people are are hurting right now in the pandemic, but I want to teach them about wine and I, I cover all sorts of subjects. And um, uh, in addition to the big crazy event I'm doing this week, I'm, I'm doing alternatives to champagne. Um, next, the week after next week, I'm interviewing um, a guy who wrote the book on wine fraud because 
counterfeit wines, it's becoming more and more of a thing. For example, Brad Pitt and An- Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's rosé Miraval gets counterfeited a lot. Um, they've found a lot of these things. So we're, we're going to do uh, a week after next inside the the mind of a wine fraudster, and um, so all sorts of subjects and. People, you know, I've, I don't know about you, but, you know, people are finding Zoom, uh, you know, pretty convenient where from the comfort of your own living room, you can you know, have a few glasses of wine. You can order the actual wines I'm presenting, or you can just bring along your own. Wow. You see, I think it is one of those things that people are looking to, uh, they become familiar up to speed with the technology just based on, you know, kind of tough love is that we have to, but also people are looking to kind of, you know, maybe learn that thing, maybe learn, you know, Tai Chi or, or maybe get in shape or do the garden or whatever kind of thing they've always wanted to do or had a passion for. And I think being able to, to learn and get as good as you can on the wine side is what people are doing. Because what you're seeing is that not only are people kind of checking in to learn one thing or another, but you, I mean, you really have to be sort of an educator here and have sort of a, a diverse and kind of fun kind of lineup is that people are coming back, you know, week after week. Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate in that the, the renewal rate has been 90%. So there, we've got a great core group of people coming back. But then new people are coming every event, average events around 60 uh, people. And people, I also welcome questions all the way through it. So uh, people can type their questions. And I love that. I love in fact, uh, last week I just did an open Q&A. And it's really fun because... You know, you can ask the simplest, most basic wine question, or or you can you know ask a black diamond question. Either way, people are going to learn. And one of my friends, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. So not that many of my friends are doing these virtual tastings because they're like, ah, we we get all this information at dinner anyway. But one of my friends, and I thought this was really sweet. He's like, you know, I, I don't buy the wines that you're presenting. I, I just like hearing you talk about it. And that was, to me, the highest compliment, especially for a friend to say, because you know how guys are with each other. But that's high, No, but that is high praise because you know yeah. that ultimately they're getting the information. They're becoming a bigger, better expert or at least enthusiast in the world of wine. And if it's just if it's passively, you know, just through sort of just the, you know, the company and hanging out and enjoying the conversation, having the ability to ask questions, then then that's then that's great. Man, I'm, I'm kind of curious because we're going to have to take a break in maybe two minutes for uh, for Walter's perspective coming up. But but. If you could quick, I would think people would counterfeit, you know, some of those, you know, like a hundred year old bottle of, you know, Chateau something, you know, something that would be like worth thousands of dollars. Like what's the retail on Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's one? I'm sure it's great. But doesn't it seem like that, Mark, does that seem like it'd be you know, like more trouble than it's worth the counterfeit? It does. It does. And you are so right. Your instincts are perfect. 99% of the cases, it's these trophy bottles. But. I think the counterfeiting started when there was a real um, uh, lack of supply. Right when it came out, I think in China they found boxes and boxes of, uh, and so it's only like a $25 wine now. Uh, so I don't know if it's still being counterfeited, but you're right. In most cases, it's the Mouton Rolls Shields and the real wild trophy bottles because, you know, 
it's it's a lot of work counterfeiting these things, apparently. <laughs> well, now you mentioned Brad Pitt. He is going to be part of the uh, the celebrity death match, the War of the Roses. Oh, yes. And so in, in a minute or so before we go to break, we can at least set the stage before we come back and flesh it all out. But you've got not only Brad Pitt and Angelina, but you've got John Bon Jovi, you know, Mary J. Blige, John Legend. I mean, you've got a really look, talk about the kind of the, the, the combatants, if you will. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, with a new celebrity rosé coming to the market seeming like every week or so, I wanted to know which are good and which aren't. So this Tuesday night, it's free. People can sign up at markoldman.com. But, yeah, Bon Jovi, Sarah Jessica Parker, John Legend, uh, musician Post Malone, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, Francis Ford Coppola, and Mary J. Blige. And they're all going to compete, and people are going to vote. This is amazing. I just tested the Zoom function about an hour ago. I've never used the polling function before. But in real time, people are going to vote for their favorite, and we're going to have fun with it. We're going to talk a little bit about it when we come back from this break, but I am curious if if you have given thought. Now, th- there are so many celebrities getting into the wine game. I think it's a testament to the popularity, to the approachability, yeah. you know, because you have, you've got a Francis Ford Coppola, you know, one of the you know, legendary filmmakers, and you've got Post Malone. He's he's a legendary face tattoo guy, I and mean, he's obviously successful in his career, but as far as, like, the, the type of, you know what I mean? I think the, the whole kind of wine and rosé thing, everybody feels like they've got a place, no pun intended, at the table. Um, with mm-hmm. this, and so to have the uh, to have the polling function built into it, and I know we're going to talk about it in a, in a minute when we come back. But were there any <laughs> thoughts as far as like just the star power of some of these could skew the results one way or the other? I'm thinking it could, and I thought about doing a blind tasting, which means in brown paper bags. But <laughs> you know, I, I think maybe the star power might be part of this. So let's just add that in it'll it'll make it that much more interesting i think when we come back from this break we are going to talk with mark oldman uh, markoldman.com you get all the information on all the different uh seminars and all the different topics and classes that he has but coming up uh we are going to flesh out the entire we're going to break it down and do the the odds for the war of the roses the celebrity death match with all of those big celebrity participants and uh i'm excited for that so stay tuned for that right after this break right now though we're going to have uh, walter jacobson's perspective uh, it is sponsored by HearingHealthCenter.com. Hello, good morning, Mom and Pop. Are you still waiting for the check you were promised by the Federal Protection Program to help your small business survive the pandemic? Too bad for you, you'll have to wait some more, because the checks are being sent to big businesses first, the ones with connections and clout. Billions to the airlines, 10 million each to 100 law firms and millions more to campaign consulting firms and Washington lobbyists. The protection program is pouring money into the pockets of big business and political insiders. $350,000 to a hotel business partially owned by Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. $350,000 to a maritime business owned by the family of Senator Mitch McConnell's wife. 350000 to a real estate business owned by the family of President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. $600,000 to a big car dealership owned by a Texas congressman. $5 million to a bigger car dealership owned by a Nevada congresswoman's husband. Many billions are being delivered to big businesses. 
while small businesses are waiting for a few thousand dollars to rescue them. Same old, same old story about government programs for everybody not being for everybody. So here's hoping, Mom and Pop, that when finally you receive what you've been promised to save your small business, it won't be too late to save it. I'm Walter Jacobson, and that's my perspective. For more, visit WGNRadio.com or download the WGN Radio app. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio until four a.m. with you. And on the line with us now, we've said it before. One of the leading voices in the world of wine has now uh, become really, I don't know, one of the, the Don King of the wine casks with his uh, <laughs> with the War of the Roses. So, Mark Oldman, welcome back, number one. And then, so let's get into Thank this. The, when it comes to celebrities, um, were these the only celebrities that you were aware of, or did you kind of handpick these for not only interest level or maybe quality of wine? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I source from wine.com, so basically I want one place nationally, so no matter what state you're in, um, where people can actually get these wines. If they, You don't have to. It's not mandatory to buy all seven wines. But if, you're, if you want to participate, um, I wanted a place that, A, uh, it's in stock, and, B, I wanted the price point to be no more than around $20. There are a few celebrities, like, um, oh, God, Kyle McLaughlin. Uh, he was on Sex in the City. Oh, yeah. and oh I know him. He yeah. makes a really good guy, and his wines are beautifully made. Um, but they start at around $30, and a lot of them are, like, $50 shot. So I wanted to make these very affordable. So it's really about accessibility for people. Now, here's the thing, too, is so some of these people, so John Bon Jovi, I know that he does, he has a restaurant or at least a soup kitchen, right? He's got some of those things. And uh, Francis Ford Coppola, as many as, as much as people appreciate his movies, he's a long time, he has his own vineyard, right? So you wear a post yeah. Post Malone maybe just have has a refrigerator, right? So were, <laughs> were were there some of these where the celebrities involved are either more involved? I know John Legend has kind of worked on a collaboration. Maybe some of these people they just stuck their names. Like kind of run through the list and like give your thoughts on each one of these. Okay, I will. And you know, I'm learning myself. So this is part of it. I you know, there are these kind of general questions I wanna ask. Like, you know, in my world, there are a lot of writers who dismiss all celebrity wines as vanity projects, but I don't think that's the case. Um, maybe some are, but let's, let's go through the list. Okay, so Bon Jovi from my beloved native uh, uh, New Jersey. This is, um, so I think a lot will be determined by who their winemaking partner is. So he partnered with uh, a, a very well-respected winemaker, Gerard Bertrand. And then I think a third part, a partner is John Sun. And, you know, the name is quite playful, Hampton Water, which was uh, people would refer to Rosé as Hampton's Water, Hampton's w- w- with an S. So I think they very smartly took that nickname Ask the name for their rosé. Um, it's funny when I posted these, and as people are signing up, 
I'm getting a lot of Bon Jovi fans come in and just say, just say, well, yeah, it's it's going to be Ponto. Like he is a very vocal and loyal group on social media, I've, I've got to say. But I expect good things because of his uh, winemaking partner. Nice, nice, nice. And, of course, you'll see on the Zoom thing a bunch of people with uh, with lighters, right, uh, showing their appreciation in the typical concert <laughs> way. So, okay, so who's next? We want to get to these guys. Yeah. Okay, sure. Number two, Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, I'm hoping her rosé is something that, you know, something more than a wine that will induce sex in the city. Sorry, <laughs> I had to. Uh, but uh, I mean, she's an actress of, of great integrity, and I know she's uh, teamed with, with a gentleman named Rob Cameron and Kim Lightborn. These are serious people in wine, so I expect good things from her. Um, John Legend uh, has, again, uh, he is a foodie. His wife, uh, Chrissy Keegan, is a foodie. Yep. Um, he, he actually made some comments um, on my social media post. So I think he's in it to win it, too. Um, then we have uh, Post Malone. I don't know what to think. <laughs> I don't uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, but I'm keeping an open mind. Remember, People didn't think Paul Newman was a good race car driver, and he proved them wrong. So, you know, you never know. I'm, I'm keeping a, a very much an open mind. Then number five, you've got Miraval. I've had it before. This is the only one I've had before, but I haven't had the 2019 Rosé. Um, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina, of course, broke up, but they still are involved with their wine brands. So are expected to be... Good. I've heard good things. That's a uh, testament. Got- well, no, but but just on that, that's a testament. You know, a, a, yeah. a famously volatile <laughs> couple, but that's the power of wine, that it can at least keep them together. Some people say they stay together for the kids, these guys together for the wine. <laughs> exactly. It, it's, it's, you know, it would be a shame if they let that brand dissolve. So uh, you, you got to at least keep that together. And, and I know it's gotten good reviews from, from trustworthy people. Then, as you mentioned, Francis Ford Coppola, very well respected in the wine world. This is the Sophia Rosé, named for his daughter, the director, and the actress. Um, I have a feeling it's going to be delicious. And then you have wine number seven. Uh, it's called Sun Goddess. It's from Italy, and it's Mary J. Blige's wine. And I'll tell you, this is from the Friuli region of northeastern Italy. When I first heard about this wine, and it's called Ramado, so it sounded like not maybe the most upscale wine like Ramado. But the more I read about it and the more I know about her partner, a gentleman named Marco, who's a real-deal winemaker in Italy, I'm starting to think that, these all might be good. Now, I don't have a horse in the game. No one's paying me to do this. If a wine turns out bad, we are going to say so. This is the, the no one, no, you know, I'm under no uh, contract or secret agreement to like a wine. So I'll give my own opinions. But what's so interesting about Zoom is I can't even vote. Like, I was like testing it out. I'm like, okay, so can I vote along with everyone else? No, 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 no. So we have almost 400 people signed up. I bet wow. now. Yeah, it's so cool. Now that people, you know, your great audience knows about it, I, I bet we'll have many, many more. It's free for people. And I think the results, I mean, it's. I think maybe, I'm hoping it tells us that celebrity wine 
should be taken more seriously, at least certain celebrity wines should be taken more seriously than the wine, certain wine snobs do. Well, or, or judged or taken seriously or at least or judged on its own merit, right? Not necessarily on the, the label or the face or the name of the celebrity that may be attached to it. But you hit on it, though, too, is that you have to take you, you could take these people that may have, you know, success totally. or notoriety in one walk of fame or another. But you look under the hood, so to speak, uh, or <laughs> into the horse's mouth. Right. And if you've got quality people making it well then it's it's probably going to be good let's let's talk a little bit about rosé in general for those people of course markholman.com you can get all the information as well but for those people that may not be as familiar is it are all rosés created at least from the building blocks or the cornerstones equal it's it's pink right so you've got that but other than that what are some of the things that make up what is uh, a rosé well great question and i'm going to train everyone in the beginning, how to evaluate what makes a good rosé, because not all rosés are created equal. And there used to be something called uh, rosé resistance. About 10 years ago, people associated rosé with kind of cheap and nasty and sweet and (laughs) sugary drinks. By the way, I I sometimes like those drinks, (laughs) too. but Not not in wine, maybe, or if it's in a wine cooler from... But, but, but there's, you know, the Europeans have been drinking this dry rosé, dry, refreshing style. I know there in Chicago, here in New York, you know, you really need good refreshment value. So I'm going to teach people to evaluate each of these rosés. First of all, the color. You know, they call rosé sunset in a glass. It can be salmon-colored. It can be pale pink. It could be blood red. So is it an appealing color? Then we're going to smell it. We're going to taste it. Um, does it. Is it crisp and refreshing? Does it remind you of rose petals? Or is it just kind of like a, a muddy, kind of cheap and nasty smelling wine? And, and, and does it taste, is it refreshing when you taste it? Or is it kind of cloying and uh, kind of clog up your, your, your pipes there a little bit? And, and I want people to come and I want, you know, I can talk with my wine expert friends, and we can use words like dissident and and buttery with a tinge of asperity and all these kind of meaningless words. But there's nothing like beginning wine people who will say, you know, it's got a little bitterness. I love hearing that because it's very authentic and and and. You know, open. Here's the thing, too, is if it authentically represents, you know, the celebrity that is attached to it, sort of like the dirty and, and gritty, I expect that from something that would be that would be yes. offered up by Post Malone. In the last 30 <laughs> seconds or so, MarkOlbin.com is the place to go to get not only the education, a little bit on what makes a great rosé, but what is going to make the greatest rosé of these uh, celebrities. So give that information out one more time. You got it. So it's MarkOlbin.com. You just go there. Click on virtual tastings and then click on the free celebrity rose death match. And we're going to have fun Tuesday night. Oh, it's great. We'll have links up at WGNRadio.com, Mark. I appreciate you doing it for the good of the wine world and, of course, our listeners as well. And thanks for jumping on the show tonight. Thank you, Dane. It was really fun. And thank you, Tom, for the sound. It was great. <laughs> it's a thumbs up from Tom. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, guys. Thank you. Bye. All right. So we are going to take a break. And when we come back after the news, we're going to have a barbecue hall of famer. One of the greatest, I think bar none, the greatest barbecue cooker to ever come out of uh, the Chicago area. Scotty Johnson is going to be joining us a little bit later on the program. We're going to talk with uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway historian Donald Davidson. We are going to have Murr from Impractical Jokers. He's not just a funny guy. He's also one of those guys that is uh, writing best-selling books. Tom, did you know that? No, Tom did not know that. But Tom's a reader, though, too. So this is going to be one of those things. We're going to get entertained. We're going to have a few laughs. We're going to learn some things. Stay tuned for the news. It's Dane here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio and on the line with us now. Always honored to have barbecue world champion, live fire guru, philanthropist with Cancer Such Chicago, and bar none, the greatest competition barbecue cooker ever to come out of the Chicagoland area. The one and only Scotty Johnson. Scotty, welcome to WGN. Thanks for having me, Dane. Good to be here. Well, it's it's always great to have you. Sort of uh, like our in, indigenous kind of like guru at the top of the mountain to be able to go to not only for information, advice. You, know, you have your hand on the pulse of so many things in the in the barbecue world, but also a little perspective. And when it comes to uh, when it comes to Chicago, you know we know the history. Everybody always gets a lot of attention. You know Texas and Carolina and Kansas City. But Chicago is really, you know, how do you feel about that as far as Chicago's, is it an untold history? We did, I actually emceed like the Great Chicago Barbecue Tour and we went to like Honey One and Lem's and I-57. We went to some of those places and recognized it. But do you think nationally Chicago is yet to really feel the love it deserves? Um, you know, no, not at all. I mean, I think the true barbecue affectionados definitely know about uh, Chicago, our style, you know, the aquarium cookers. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I absolutely traveled every single one of those restaurants that you mentioned and then some just trying to figure out what was going on, how to cook barbecue, what I needed to do. And, you know, I, I grew up eating rib tips and, and hot links served on, you know, with some white bread. So I still love though. I could eat those, you know, every day right now. I, I absolutely love them. So, um, you know, and the sauce is, is definitely, you know, a little bit something different kind of thing, I would say, than what Kansas City and, and uh, or Texas, you know, with their thin, thin watery or out east in Carolina with their their uh, vinegar. But, yeah, I definitely think Chicago has a style. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think they have it as much as, you know, Nashville or something like that does. So, you know, is it in the top big ones with Carolinas and Memphis and Texas or Kansas City? No, but, you know, I think we're close 
second or fifth or whatever that would be so <laughs> i love it i are close <laughs> a close second or fifth i always i chalk it up to that chicago is just such a great city whether it's the architecture the sports or the political corruption or whatever it is you know that we make headlines for is yeah. that we just have a lot more going on in barbecue although we do it at as high a level as anyone we just have more things to be famous for than some of these other places well yeah and let's face it i mean we we were the hog capital of the world so you know i mean they're going to be cooking up and there's going to be scraps and stuff like that and guess what those probably were were rib tips and sausage and you know we had a huge ethnic here with sausage so it doesn't really surprise me that we you know went towards more of the rib tips or the you know in air quotes the garbage meats so there's not that that maybe be an ancillary category down the road we'll talk about that <laughs> hey you know i mean let's face it baby back ribs were once considered you know just a waste of the hog no one knew what to do with those you know now people are you know paying eight nine bucks a pound for them i don't know why but it's uh you know chicken wings were another thing that were always just a throwaway of the chicken and now you know they, they cost as much as buying you know chicken breasts so Things fall kind of in and, and, and out of favor. Certainly there's been more either information and some of it's been just, you know, word of mouth or the internet. It's been able to get kind of the word on the street out to a lot of different people. Some of it have been like really concerted and well-crafted marketing campaigns on the equipment side here, the hometown for, for Weber kettle, you know, kind of the universal thing that everybody sort of has in the backyard that maybe they feel like they're a barbecue expert or the king of the backyard or whatever. Everybody's got that kind of stuff when it comes to some of the extra equipment that's out there when you started and we're winning world championships you know the information it just you had to kind of figure it out like you said do a little recon reconnaissance you had to go talk to some of the other leaders uh in the sport in the discipline to get the information and now i think if people have a decent internet uh, internet connection it's all there you mentioned the aquarium smoker <laughs> is is that the next thing is we get into like everybody knows what a kamado is everybody's got the stick burner everybody knows pellet smokers do you think the aquarium smoker will ever catch on sky God, I would hope so. I absolutely love them, but no, you know, they're, they're pretty much here in Chicago. The old, uh, you know, the old school places will have them in there. Every once in a while you see them up for sale and, you know, I would love to, you know, love to have one. I just can't, can't, uh, justify having a big five by five smoker in the middle of my patio kind of thing. So bad enough. Hey, it's bad enough. My garage is covered with smokers that are all inside of there. You know, never mind now an aquarium one. So are they awesome? Yeah, I'd absolutely love one, but our mutual guy, like famous Dave, he's got, he's always been a big fan of the aquarium smoker and I've seen some of the pictures he's got up in his, he has his own resort up in Hayward and, and he's got an aquarium smoker, up there absolutely and, beautiful beautiful yeah, pit yeah it, it's a it's a great thing so what has been some of the things that it has it has it been sort of the progression where maybe you saw it being used or some of the origins of some of these different cookers being used and people winning them or winning and and kind of cooking at a high level and you said oh yeah once this c- catches on people will have it or are there some things that you've been surprised about uh you know i i guess you look at it now and it is people are sort of surprised with the popularity of pellet cookers and and that sort of thing. I was way ahead of the game. I got my, you know, hybrid pellet cooker. um, I I think it was either 2000 or 1999 that fast Eddie made it uh, out of Kansas city. And, you know, and it was strictly for competition. He used the guts of, of a Traeger um, smokers. So like the, the box, um they would shoot the the pellets down into the fire uh, pot and then the actual guts you know with the thermostat on it 
and then he just built this big thing that sort of looked like a fridge around it and made it really insulated and you know it became one of the better competition cookers which is actually what i used uh when i won the the world championship so they've sort of made this cycle again you know where people were sort of afraid and i think it was just more because everyone thought they were electric cookers where you know, the only electricity was running the augers, which is no different than a rotisserie on a, a pit, and you use electricity for that. So they don't provide heat. So I think that would probably, you know, be my surprise one. Right now, the real popularity is, is you know, like the Texas uh, idea with the offset cookers, and people are using, um, you know, wooden sticks and stuff like that. The newest thing though are the the drums where people are using you know all garbage can kind of things 55 gallon <laughs> drums that they've made into this the whole you know cooking hot and fast kind of thing where you're cooking basically right over the coals then you're dripping right onto the coals and getting extra flavor that way so yeah they've definitely but then like you said weber i learned how to cook barbecue on a on a weber kettle in the backyard and progressed from there um, you know, Weber still makes a Weber Smoky Mountain that, to be honest with you, I don't know if there's a better, for the money, a better uh, smoker out there for the backyard. Someone wanting to start off, you know, probably 400 bucks, you can get a, like I said, one of the best cookers out there that'll, you know, hold temperatures. Um, you know, the, the downfalls are if it's really windy or if it's really cold out. But, you know, if you're cooking in the summertime, spring or fall or something like that, they or you put a wind block up and you won't get any more consistency than using a you know good old Weber right out of here of Chicagoland. So it, it's the kind of thing that you're kind of surprised is that people are able to achieve championship level results off of just a variety of different things. So a lot of it comes into certainly you need the you need the equipment, some equipment, right? But you can get, you know, just a real variety of success based on whether it's the technique or the patience or the recipes or or some of the things. Do you feel now that everything's sort of been made and now with the internet, even like the smallest businessman but has maybe an artisan or, you know, metal worker or whatever, you're seeing a lot of that stuff pop up pop up and, and get some kind of popularity that back when you were doing it is that people there was just maybe more of an innovative spirit to how it was done where people were either oh well, yeah well doing that, their I own mean, stuff, you know, making Absolutely. It. That's how let's face it, that's how, you know, like the garbage can cookers came about was because people could have, you know, and they could make that sort of thing you know, in their backyard. I mean, man, when I first started, there was nothing out there. I mean, it was like David Close down in Houston made an offset pit. You know, some guys came along after that. Oklahoma Joe had one as well back then. Weber Smoky Mountain was it. You know, they uh, uh, Brinkman had one um, that was just terrible. But the Weber was Weber Smoky Mountain was a pretty good one, and. You know, there just wasn't a lot of lot out there. I mean, let's face it, there when I started back in the day, um the internet was slowly but surely coming around and that's how I, I got found competition barbecue and that was by going on there. I got this smoker from Home Depot and I thought I was just the you know, the guru of barbecue <laughs> and then little did I know, you know, I tried to figure out how to cook a turkey for Thanksgiving and I found a barbecue forum and as they say, the rest is history. Wow. I found out there was competition barbecue and all because I wanted to cook a turkey. I found this forum and asked some guys some stuff. And next thing you know, I'm 
cooking competition. So it, it's the kind of thing. And to let the listeners know, we're talking with Scotty Johnson, world champion, uh, the greatest competition cooker to come out of Chicago. As many great food personalities as we have when it comes to competition barbecue, uh, nobody has done more than Scotty Johnson, and, and an advocate for it too. You know, an ambassador for all of those kind of things seen and done uh, so much. When you mention that, though, like you kind of just like. I don't want to, you know, just kind of stumbling into the fact that competition barbecue exists. Are you surprised that even now with as popular, and I got to say, it's got to be the most universal cooking discipline out there. You know, there are people that like certain types of cooking and everybody does a certain type of this or that. But as far as like the thing that most people have some, I think, at least familiarity with is like, you know, cooking on a grill in the backyard is something everybody sort of has. Are you surprised that even with everything we have, with some television shows out there and with the Internet, that as many people just aren't even aware that there is the whole competition world? Um, you know, it does. I mean, there's a ton. It's either people get it or they don't. It almost seems like, you know, I mean, it's surprising how many people, you know, ask me, like, if I do the same kind of, you know, barbecuing as some of those uh, barbecue shows. And I'm like, well, you know, yes and no. You know, I mean, it's like all those people are friends of mine and, you know, they're they're competition cookers. But we don't really sit there in front of judges and cook, and they ask us questions while we're we're cooking, kind of thing. You know, we're behind um, where they don't see us, and there's walls, so the judges don't see us. So, but there's stuff out there. I mean, people will find it. You get some people who are just absolutely barbecue aficionados that you know they will find competition barbecue because they're just into it. Um, but you know, nowadays with the Google and you type in barbecue, it's amazing, you know, what you can find and if, how much searching you do for it. So, but it is, it is honestly, I, I absolutely love it that people are stumbling into the competition world, you know, even if they give it for a year or two and try their hand at it, because, you know, like you said, everyone feels they can do it just as you were able like maybe some of the roadblocks to your access were just whether it was lack of the internet or, or information or you know just some of the ways that people are finding it now one of the i think roadblocks and i think we've done a little bit to kind of talk about hey you can cook great food you don't have to spend a ton of money but as you get to when you know people see if they do a little investigation on the competition side and they see what some of these top teams are using it's a it's a very it's kind of a prohibitive entry point right if you look at some of the things you think okay okay, if I want to cook great, if I want to be the greatest of all time, I got to get what Darren Worth has. And you look at it and it's like, geez, you really, you really got to make a commitment. Well, I mean, you do, but then again, there's guys that are out there that are winning. You know, I've won contests where I traveled in and, you know, threw everything in my SUV and, and traveled in and smoker either towed it or, you know, had just had a 10 by 10 easy up a table, you know, some tubs to wash dishes you know, a Cambro and a cooler and go in and win. And, you know, and then there's guys with hundred thousand dollar RVs or, you know, trailers or whatever that, that pull in and, you know, their smokers are mounted in the back and they don't have to unpack anything, you know, that, that win as well. But, you know, you'll, you'll notice though, that the teams that tend to win are the teams that are willing to put the money and the time into it. And to do that, you know, you got to have some comforts. I mean, I used to, they cruise around in, in a, in a class CRV, you know, I'm pulling my smoker behind me and in the back of the RV, it was a, a garage style RV, they call them. So I had a 10, 10 foot area back there where I would store stuff and I would convert it into a total kitchen, um, for competition. So, 
you know, I understand that, but it's like, I've also gone in though, where someone can literally get into it at a, at a cheap end and just have a tent and, you know, their smoker and a table and coolers and they can compete with the big boys and, you know, and still win. I mean, it, the, I, I find nothing better than going to a contest and like literally, you know, a, a team that first time they've ever cooked and they come in and they get a top 10 call That's great. and they get a ribbon and, you know, and it, it's the start of their downfall of spending a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> because of a $5 ribbon. So, oh. you know, one, once you're hooked, you're hooked on it, on it bad, you know, it's like, well, I, I've just got a, you know, eighth place ribbon. Look at how pretty it is. I can cook with anyone. And next thing you know, you know, you're. <laughs> becoming me me kind of thing and you know you, you cook in 43 different states and you know <sighs> cook 200 contests and yeah make you're, it a full-time job as, and still work and as a public, do things so as a public service yeah i guess you're right scotty we should probably throw out that disclaimer you know that there's a warning right is that this could be and it and really is it's kind of addictive you know not only is the food great but here the camaraderie is great too when we come back from this break we're going to talk some of the things that make it a little bit different from what you may see in your backyard the equipment we talked a little bit about that but also the food it's a little bit or maybe a lot different than the kind of stuff you would normally bake the kind of stuff that is winning competition we'll talk about that as well as the barbecue community we got scotty johnson on with us Dane here on 720 wgn Seven twenty WGN is Dane here with you high atop Chicago Skyline Studio on the line, continuing our conversation with uh, barbecue world champion Chicago's very own Scotty Johnson and uh, and Scotty as we and you've always kind of offered up that inspirational olive branch to maybe the new cooker saying hey you don't have to have the most expensive rig you don't need a jambo you don't need you can get in there and you can compete and you've seen those things happen um, yep. with equipment then you could get you know, at your local hardware store and whatever. And you can progress from there if you feel like you want to take it more seriously or maybe, you know, the spirit moves you <laughs> and you become addicted to it. But on the food side, you know, with people in their backyard, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest, you know, chicken I've ever tasted. You should join or, or kind of enter in competitions. There's a different thing. If you can explain a little bit about the differences as far as the type of food that is entered in competition as opposed to just your average backyard party. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first number one thing is when you're cooking competition barbecue is we're looking to try and get the best meat we possibly can. You know, whether that's getting chicken from Jewel or getting it from Whole Foods or, you know, there's teams that have chicken that is overnighted delivered to them uh, for competition. So the quality of meats is a number one the difference between what people are cooking, you know, in the backyard and what we're cooking on competition side. Um, you know, like we're using Wagyu briskets, which are these cross between a Japanese uh, cow and then a uh, certified Angus beef to make this Wagyu. So it's this beautifully marbled, very expensive, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a brisket. Um, 
which it's another one of those deals you spend 200 bucks to win 225 bucks but but scotty you, you know, that, you've seen too where and i've i've seen some of the stuff online and, and yes you got to have i think a certain like a certain level of of quality of meat but some of the people that that overpay for the wagyu it doesn't always it's not like an automatic guarantee you're gonna win absolutely not i mean i guarantee you just because you spend that kind of money you can finish first or you can finish 40th in a contest. So nothing guarantees because you've spent the most money you're going to win. That's why we have the blind, they call it double blind judging in the Kansas city barbecue society where they don't know whose box they're judging kind of thing. You know, they can take guesses and everything else, but I guarantee you, they don't know the judges don't have a clue of who they're judging. So that's the whole point is to try and equal the field out. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, that you you can win. You know, back when I first started, certified Angus beef was you know a very high end of it, and then all of a sudden it switched over a little bit to prime beef, and then it made a quick jump from prime right into the wagyu. And you know, they're just different animals. They're better cuts of meat. Yep. Same with the ribs. You know, we're very we were very particular about it. I'd go to a certain store to get my. Um, ribs i'd go to another store to get my chicken i would go to a third store to get my um uh pork you know and then a fourth place to get my briskets if i didn't get them um overnighted into me so you know it was definitely like i said it's a lot of work when you're doing it full-time as i call it basically every every kind of weekend or every other weekend it was a full-time job so that that's definitely the number one aspect the other thing is, you know, definitely the quality of the equipment. Um, doesn't mean that you can't win on, you know, as I said previously, you can definitely win on cheaper smokers. I mean, that's not holding anyone back. Good barbecue is good barbecue. It doesn't matter what it's cooked on. It's what it tastes like to those judges. <clears throat> so, you know, yes, you can go anywhere from, you know, cooking on Weber grills or, you know, the lower end smokers for, you know, three, four hundred dollars, you know, up to cooking on a jambo style cooker, you know, that can, you know, cost eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars for one of those. Um, so there's everything in between there though. So it doesn't necessarily because you're spending more, you're gonna win more. I mean, usually people that are spending more are, you know, better quality teams and they're you know, they're they're winning to begin with. So this is just them keeping them feel that that's going to give them an edge by spending more money on a better cooker style or that sort of thing. So you, you can definitely win by using, you know, quote backyard as, um, as, as a guy that's familiar with the competition world today and see kind of what it is and what sort of is like the standard of the meats that are cooked or the standard of some of the acceptable equipment that has some successes. And you and I are both music fans. And so what were some of those moments you mentioned getting in on the pellet cooker thing, which is now pretty universal, right? And you know where I I think I saw one at jewel for sale, which is like, I mean, gosh, it's jumped the shark. So what were some of those moments from, and the music kind of connection is, you know, we all remember the first time we heard, metallica it was like something totally different or erupt you know eddie van halen's like eruption guitar solo it was like what is this what were some of those moments in the barbecue world whether it was like someone brought in a different meat that had never been used before or someone tried you know brought in a different piece of equipment that really just kind of caught on because it changed the game you know honestly i would say the number one thing is technology i mean when i was first going you know and this is only like 20 years ago or so 
we didn't have, you know, everything from a, a, a thermopen, which is, a, you know, an instant read thermometer where we could stick it in the meat and literally get a read back, you know, within a second of what the temperature is of the meats. When I first started, you'd stick it in, close the door, you know, because it would take 10 or 30 seconds to actually get up, to finally up the temperature what? and you'd walk away, you'd forget it and the thing would be melted the next time you came back <laughs> oh, and, and looked at it. So, uh, you know, that was number one was just get that, that kind of technology um the internet is just huge because i mean there just wasn't that kind of information on like how to cook a competition pork butt when i was starting off yeah the internet was around you know and remember this is only 20 years ago but now it's just flooded with everything guys are doing youtube videos and you know competition cooks are putting their their stuff out there uh with me from you know contests that i'd go to where guys were just shadowing me and watching me doing turn-ins and that sort of thing um you know so there's tons of videos out there um the quality of meats has just gone up you know that's another thing that has just amazed me from when i started to what it is now i mean the quality of the meats is is just amazing and you know now it's just and the, the other thing is just what guys are using to make it comfortable for them to be able to cook and you know and make it comfortable for them when I, you know when i was going if someone had like a you know a, a basically a cargo trailer they were pretty fancy back in the day uh you know now everyone pulling in with rvs or trucks with big huge trailers and you know specific they call them porch model trailers where yep. the cooker is mounted on the back of them you know that's just standard fare now with the guys pulling in so um you know it's definitely just been advancement i think it's just been guys are molding other sports into the sport of competition barbecue and making it you know more comfortable and that sort of thing so and i think just the information too like you know like you said is yeah. that people know what's what's out there you know where they have access to whether it's those tips or the cooking techniques or equipment or meats or, or any of those kind of things and some of the times i always use that example you know sort of that epiphanal moment where you just didn't know that it could be better or could be different when we would go to ponderosa you know it's a big friday night or something we're going to be we're, we're going to be living right so we're going to ponderosa to have steak and then <laughs> and you think that that's great because you just don't know any better and then you have your first you know steak from a from a butcher shop and you're like i didn't know it could be like this and so now everybody has sort of the aspirational whether it's the equipment or the meat or even the instruction and and so but here's the thing chris lily mentioned it you've mentioned it before too you can have all the information in the world it's execution and so you still have to be able to do it like what does it take are there any michael jordans out there that just have this natural talent for it or if you're already a chef are you geared to it or is barbecue a different discipline and is it just about putting in the time you know, I mean, I'm old school in that regard where it's just like the more you practice, the better you become. You know, I mean, it's like my kids won't eat chicken because I would be cooking it, you know, every night for a month, you know, kind of thing. And you do that so that you can literally do it in your sleep kind of thing. And there's no thought to it at all. So I knew exactly what I was doing to make the best chicken that I could possibly what I thought was going to win. Um, you know, but ultimately though, Dane, it comes down to, if you hit the right table with the right judges, you know, I mean, you got to put out food on a tee so the judges can have the best swing at it as they could. You throw them a curveball with spicy or salty or the, you know, whatever different kind of thing. Some guys are going to like it. Others aren't, 
So you can get every single kind of instruction in the book. I'll put them out there. You know, people want to know them. I'll let them know. I'll post it on Facebook. I'll post it in groups, wherever. Um, doesn't mean you're going to be able to cook it, though. So, um, you know, like I said, you can put it out there for guys, whether or not they want to practice it and become, you know, it isn't something that's just handed to you. It definitely takes a lot of practice and skill and while some might come along and be you know instant hits it doesn't happen too often you know guys are either going to cooking classes or they cooked on a team or they you know as we say they dishwashed for a team uh for a while where they're just hanging out and seeing how to cook and learning how to cook and you know learning how to become a champion as i always used to say um but not too often guys are just coming out without any knowledge and winning on the, the circuit just because of taste and tenderness is a little bit different than what you're serving in a restaurant. The the taste and, and some of those other things that are happening, this is another, I think, element that's gotten a little more, maybe a lot more attention or familiarity, and you're seeing a lot more out there. I remember as a kid growing up, we just had the magic seasoning with like Paul Perdome stuck to the side of it. That was it, or maybe some things from McCormick. And now, you know, not only do you have – you know, some of the basic stuffs that have been around years are endorsed by, you know, some great personalities. Now you've just got things, you know, popping up all over the place. And I think to a variety of success, what are your thoughts on that? Or is there some, some base that you could share with the listeners, some like a basic, like go-to like this, and you could say Texas salt and pepper. I mean, I guess, but are there things like beyond that are still kind of universal and, and people should look at? Uh, you know, there, there's so many, I, I personally, right now, I love to have the plain, simple salt, pepper, and a little garlic powder in there or garlic, granulated garlic in, in cooking my barbecues. Now, you know, maybe throw a little bit of cayenne if I'm looking for some heat, but you know, there, there's so many rubs out there and they have them in the stores. And you know, the way I always looked at it was because when I first started, I, you know, I got books and I had books on how to make rubs and what you're looking for. And I'd have absolutely crazy ones, you know, with rosemary and just absolutely loved it. But in competition world, that doesn't work. You know, you need to have the basics of salt, pepper, sugar, cayenne, paprika, you know, onion, garlic, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but when you start going crazy, you know, uh, in the, at least the competition world crazy, like with rosemary or, you know, garlic, lemon, chicken, while it's great to eat off the grill at home and in the backyard, that's going to absolutely sink like a lead ship, uh, in the competition world. Um, but I mean, even now they have, you know, stores, their store out here in Downers Grove that they have a whole barbecue section, you know, and they probably have 50 different rubs and sauces and cooking stuff. And, you know, and there's another store up in, uh, Wilmette, um, same deal, you know, where they, they're carrying all these competition sauces and rubs and that these guys make these because they're good. I mean, and, and that's the way I look at it. Yeah. If I want to have a, a good sauce, I can sit there all day long and probably make a good sauce and it'll take me three hours. Or I can run up to Jewel or one of these specialty barbecue stores and buy a bottle of sauce for, you know, three, four or five bucks kind of thing. And these guys have perfected it where it's a good bottle of sauce. You know, and I, I so I always used to use sponsored rubs and sauces i didn't really make anything i would tweak my rubs and my sauces you know a little bit what i thought the judges were going to like um you know but do i have books yeah i've probably got 20 books down you know in my my collection for barbecue books where it's all about making sauces and rubs and you know i looked at them i read them just to get ideas of how to do things um 
it's a lot of work I'm doing all that. And I'm, <laughs> well, I'm all about making barbecue easy now. So I, you know, I use already pre-made commercial rubs and sauces and there's some good stuff out there. Yeah. It's kind of like, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, we all, you know, yeah, you, you, absolutely. Need a, you need a light bulb. Could you probably look online on how to make your own light bulb? Maybe, I guess it's easy just to go buy one that works and works great because you already have that figured out to let the listeners know we're talking with uh, barbecue legend scotty johnson he is on with us we're going to take a quick break and we come back we're going to finish up with um with really what is the most i think important and special ingredient in the barbecue world which is the people which is the community and the people that make it not only go but also kind of share all of that great food and that great family so uh, keep it here at staying on 720 wgn Seven twenty WGN is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio, and on the line with us, joining us uh, again is a barbecue legend, guru, world champion, Chicago's very own Scotty Johnson. And uh, Scotty, welcome back once again. Thank you. Yeah, when, when we went to break, we kind of teased it out there that there was one ingredient that um, that we haven't necessarily talked about that is maybe the most important ingredient to keeping all of this kind of uh, barbecue explosion, I think, in popularity together. And what keeps all those people kind of coming back? Because you've talked about it. It's hard. It's hard to do it well. It's expensive. It's addictive. This is not an easy thing to get in on. And uh, But the barbecue community, and as a guy who's covered you know, the food world in and around of it in the barbecue community, there is nothing. There is no other discipline within the culinary world that has the people that make it go, that run it, that that lead it that are that are more i think cohesive you know that are more together more communal than the barbecue community if there's a disaster they're the ones mobilizing and getting out and i think part of it is maybe the mobility of the food but it's also i think the dna and the mindset of the people in it so scotty talk a little bit about that like you're a big part of and a, a member of that community and that was probably even from chicago that maybe doesn't get as much attention for the barbecue world is one of the things that kept you you know in and around it right it was the friends family the people Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's face it. That's one of the reasons why. I mean, we, we went out and cooked 43 different states and my girls had, you know, they grew up out on the barbecue circuit. They had friends from, you know, Arizona to New England to Florida to, you know, the South where they, they were looking forward to going there because they had friends, you know, from, from seeing friends at other contests. I mean, there, there's a circuit where guys are going to be going from contest to contest. And generally I would try and stay close to home as much as possible, but you know, you'd also chase contests because of friends you chase contests because of locations you chase contests because they were, you know, big money and you're going to go and try and hit some big money and get lucky. Um, so yeah, but the friends though, I mean, there, there's, you know, I, I still have friends that I, I met online, 20 years ago that I would consider, you know, outstanding friends. We became even better friends going out on the circuit and the camaraderie that you get. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're, it's one of those deals where you want to beat everyone's ass 
you know, the next day when it comes to judging. But I guarantee you on a Friday night, if you forgot something at home, you forgot a rub, a saucer, you know, aluminum foil or gloves or whatever it was that you forgot, I guarantee you within five minutes, you could have whatever you're looking for from the team stepping up and the teams, you know, giving whatever they had to be able to help you out. So that's just how it was. I mean, the, the whole community of the barbecue competition world is everyone from, you know, doctors, attorneys down to, you know, garbage men to, you know, I mean, it's just every job in between from blue collar to white collar to, you know, people that are, have their own businesses to, it's just, I've seen everything out there and the people that, you know, that's what makes it so special is because once you put on, you know, that apron on a Friday and a Saturday, everyone's equal. There, there's no one that's better. It doesn't matter that, you know, your equipment doesn't matter what your job, your title, none of that. All that matters is come Saturday and what you're turning in. So that's what makes it so special is that there's just no, you know, certain type that's going to do better than others. We're all a big community out yeah, there. And, I can't. You know, the Friday night fun, the Friday night fun is probably the best thing where everyone gets together and, you know, everyone lets their hair down and have fun and tell stories and, you know, eat food and drink drinks and, you know, just have fun kind of thing. Yeah. So. Well, now, Scotty, you, you hit on it and I had, I had not necessarily thought about it that way, but I cannot think of another, another, almost anything that is that, really pulls in people from all walks of everywhere you hit on it whether it's whether it's executives or professionals and whether it's just you know small town people or or entire families or whatever draws them in you know that i think common bond and passion just like supersedes all of it and sometimes you don't even know who these people are in their regular it's not like they're like yeah i'm a doctor and i'm doing this like it's like their barbecue personality and their persona like takes precedence during those weekends you, you don't even know who these people are sometimes no you know and it, honestly it doesn't really matter i mean there's guys that you know i knew for five years and i didn't know what they did <laughs> right. you know they they showed up in their overalls and you know and their ripped up t-shirts and their you know tongs on and they they were re- ready to uh you know cook barbecue and find out that they were you know judges and you know, on their you know Monday through right. Thursday, when they weren't in court, they were in court and they were being a judge kind of thing, you know. And it was just like you just it, it didn't really matter to be honest with you. I mean, everyone was equal once once you get behind and start cooking. So that's the fun part about it, though, you know. And like I said, we we enjoyed it just because we went to so many different regions and you know got to know so many different people. And I mean, we got to see America. And, got to see what all americana was all about so that was yeah fun. and as many differences as we all have whether it's like you know from different areas or different backgrounds or politically or whatever you know to see people come together over barbecue is something that is that is i think that is really kind of transcendent and special one of the last things is like what do you think it is is it you know people sometimes say that it's you know primordial it's like you know caveman and fire stuff and that's what draws people and keeps people in is that we're just sort of hardwired as a, as a species right not necessarily with any background to love barbecue and love live fire cooking or or is it something else what do you think you know i think it might be a little bit of everything dane i mean let's face it a little a lot of it has to do with competition um you know the, the whole camaraderie of the bar- backyard barbecue you know it's always been this family thing of people getting together you know whether or not you're in the south or the you know east or texas or wherever 
you know, barbecue here might have been people pulling out the Weber and grilling hamburgers and hot dogs, whereas barbecue in other areas was them legitimately making slow smoke barbecue. But it always brought people together, brought family, friends, parties, you know, and so that that's the fun part about it is that sort of thing. You know, people, I, I have so many friends that have turned the competition barbecue into the next step and they're opening up restaurants and, you know, food trucks and catering businesses and that. So that, you know, that's another thing I, I did the opposite. I, I tried to raise money, um, you know, for cancer research for a few years there. So I had my goal as well, but it, it, everyone has their own reasons, but I mean, ultimately I think what keeps it all together though, is the friendship, the fun, um, you know, like I said, everyone wants to beat everyone's ass come Saturday, <laughs> yep. but the whole barbecue community of people having fun and friendships, you know, it, it let's face it, the majority of the time you're not hearing politics, you're not hearing what's going on with the world. You know, nowadays it's a little bit more with, you know, people being, being more laid back and distanced and stuff like that because of this virus going around. But you just didn't hear all that. You know, people were friends. It didn't matter. You know, I mean, there would always be back and forth, you know, like between college teams or, you know, the Packers and the Bears and that sort of <laughs> yes, thing. Yes, yes, yes. I love them. But, um, you know, so you'd have that little banter back and forth. But you didn't have that whole thing, you know, where people are disagreeing about politics or, you know, whatever the to- hot topic of the day was. Because guys were there to have fun and not worry about that and not have a care in the world and, you know, just get to know people and have fun. So. Um, as we get to like the, you know, the one thing everybody can agree on, I think is that barbecue is as big and as no pun intended hot as it has ever been. As more people either get up to speed, they know what's possible, what kind of cool things they can do or cook in the backyard. I think the pandemic may have accelerated that, you know, people have more time in, they can't go to restaurants, you know, they've got to kind of figure it out and what better way to figure out something great than, than to do some barbecue in the backyard. And so I think, I think that's one of the great things, but as a guy who's been there, seen it all done so much at the highest level for the best reasons. And you see kind of what barbecue is today, whether it's the competition side or just the, the prospects of just kind of mass awareness of all the great things that you've been doing this whole time. What do you see as like the future for barbecue? You know, I I really hope it does. I mean, I'm not saying competition. I mean, obviously I, I, I went for the competition angle just because I was, you know, competitive in nature, but I, I really hope it does where guys, you know, are in their backyard and they enjoy it. And, you know, you, you learn the, the cooking of low and slow and, you know, with live fire cooking, it's the greatest thing in the world. You know, like I said, you can invite friends over, um, you know, it can have fun. I mean, it, it can lead to competition barbecue. Cause let's face it. Everyone is the best barbecue cook in your block when no one else makes it so um you know who's gonna who's gonna pass up and say no your barbecue is terrible when people are giving you a slab of ribs so and you know and it can just progress from there that if all of a sudden someone wants to take the next step and do like a backyard cooking or if they want to step up and compete in the um you know the big contest they can't so to me that's awesome you know i'd love to see more barbecue restaurants out there you know i love barbecue um, you know, the fact that guys are making it. Um, so yeah, you know, I just hope it keeps growing. It, uh, it's fun. makes me smile, you know, seeing that, you know, where it's come, uh, from where I started, 
to what it is now and you know the barbecue restaurants that are opening and you know restaurants here cooking legit you know barbecue that's really good so i just see i hope it keeps growing it's great seeing you know stores like ace hardware carrying you know big green eggs and traeger grills and weber grills and that sort of thing and you know weber making pellet grills it's just all excitement i hope it keeps growing and keeps going from there um you know like i said back in the day you didn't go into an ace hardware and have that many different styles of smokers that you could buy there you know and now, now it's happening. So it's, I hope it just keeps growing. It's a testament. I mean, it's a testament to all that stuff, yeah. all that work, all that success, all that great work on the ambassador side, getting the word out, all the, just all kind of the progression of things that you knew from the get go and were, and I don't want to say addicted to, but you were like attracted to initially and immediately. And obviously that's a universal language and a lot of people are speaking it now. So Scotty, as we let you go, is there, you know, we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com where people, cause that's one of the things that you're great with is you're you're just open you mentioned as far as sharing some of the things that you do in techniques and certainly advice and inspiration and encouragement right for people that want to get into it but is there any other uh you know either website or, or things you want to leave us with for people to get more information no there's facebook pages you know with like chicagoland barbecue and, and that sort of thing it's fun to see you know you get everyone from just backyard guys that absolutely love it there to competition guys that hang out on there in facebook um you know tons of different barbecue groups out there um you know the, the chicago group they, they do some fun bus trips where they'll hop around and go to like six different restaurants you know on a saturday afternoon kind of thing um you know, get out there and try it. It's fun. It's a good community. Um, and it doesn't necessarily just need to be the competition community. I mean, there's a bunch of good guys out there in the barbecue world, you know, enjoy it, have fun. You know, you can eat your mistakes. That's the best part about it. <laughs> and, you know, and go from there. So, you know, I've made some, some great brisket chili out of some really bad brisket I made. So, you know, I mean, it's fun. Try it, have fun. Um, you know, and go from there. You never know what, what's going to happen. Go out and see a contest firsthand live and, and, you know, see if it's, uh, something that you might want to do if you're a competitive guy in, in the competitive cooking. So check it out and, um, and ask questions and don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, everyone always thought that the top teams never like to answer questions or they're unapproachable. And you know what? I used to love people coming and talk to me. I, you know, I'll give you every recipe I got doesn't mean you can cook it but i'll give you everything i got <laughs> or or the other thing is you got to figure out if i'm lying to you it's the other one but, you know, ah, mo- most of the time you know they'll give you three-fourths of what the real recipe is so three-fourths of nothing is pretty good so yeah three quarters of the way there is great a little mystery built in you got um some to do's uh, on the work side so scotty thanks again so much for everything that you do for the community for you know on the ambassador side carrying that torch for great barbecue not only great barbecue but also chicago barbecue as well and thanks for jumping on wgn tonight thanks dane appreciate having me Seven twenty WGN. Dan here with you until four AM in for Nick DeGilio tonight, and uh, of course he'll be back with us 
next week and uh, excited to have a lot of really cool stuff going on as people try to decide what they can do with the rest of their summer. And one of the ways that people are getting out and about is enjoying a road trip, and there is no better place to go, well, depending on your options, I guess, right, than the the well-recognized entertainment capital of Illinois, Peoria, Illinois. He has gone there. He is calling from there. It is the one and only blockbuster, Blake Stubbs. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dane. How are you doing? It's been a while. It's been a minute, I guess you could say. It's it's hard because, you know, I think the ability to track time is like pandemic yeah. time. It's one of the things that's been sort of affected, right? Because it's hard to even, I don't want to say it's hard to remember exactly what day of the week, but things are just a little bit yeah. kind of bizarro world these days. I have to agree, uh, namely because I did about five weeks of quarantine there for a while, like everybody else. Uh, and I know some people out there are still in quarantine, so they're really feeling the impact of this. Well, what time is it? What time does it matter? You know, like that's kind of how it is. Like as long as they get done what they need to get done, sleep when whenever you see fit. Uh, but I, I've managed to be back on a bit of a hard routine. You know, night I'm back to my day job. Uh, advertising is kicked back up, and as you know, Dane, I make commercials for a living. Yes, you do. So that's that's one of those things that you know once that got going again, um, you know, you ease back into it. But even as you're easing back into it, you're still like. Your sense of when you go to sleep and when you get up and when you do things. And I got to be honest with you, I got pretty bad there for a while. I was watching way too many movies and, and catching up on TV shows uh, during that five week stint. Uh, and while I feel like I'm caught up on everything I've, you know, wanted to watch for a long time, I just, it just, it, it, days kept running together and you just kind of lose complete and utter track. And now I feel like I'm, I'm back to a, a version of normal. I think is what it is. I think I'm back to a version of normal, not, you know, the full-on normal, which I think we're all kind of like, is that ever going to happen again? But, uh, yeah, a little bit of a... A little bit of an adjustment, to say the least. Well, now, full-on normal, was that the working title for Full Metal Jacket before they decided to kind of settle on <laughs> on sort of the war theme? When it comes to the... We're going to talk a little, a little bit about Road Trip in this first segment because it sure. is the kind of thing that not everybody has done. You did it in the name of uh, in the name of movies and entertainment, in the name of all the things that you were doing yeah. from Peoria all the way to, to Hollywood. And so you've done that, that certain road trip thing, I think, in the spirit of, let's say, Easy Rider or maybe Thelma and Louise, right? Those road trips. Trip sure. kind of situations. So, what is it like for people that are now because maybe the typical vacation or the thing they would normally do isn't available, and so maybe getting in a car out there in nature, you know, with the wind in your in your hair or, or however it works, people are thinking road trip. What was it like to go from, let's say, middle America all the way out to the West Coast? Well, for me, there was a big shock because I knew the end destination was going to be a desert. That's where I was going to end up really living, was in the Palm Springs area. Now, I spent a lot of time in L.A. I did work in L.A., so, of course, I got to have my my movie fantasies kind of come to life when you're in, uh, you know, the greater Hollywood, Los Angeles area. You get to see it. It's, it is real. Um, it, you're going to find, I think, for a lot of people, if you've never been, it's a lot smaller than you expected. Um, but it's still quite thrilling. Um, when I went from living in Illinois, where the weather changes every 30 minutes, or at least that's one of the many jokes that an Illinoisan who, who you know, was born, bred, and grew up around here would say, 
Um, getting out there and having really nice weather, almost to the point of some days being too hot, uh, was a bit of a shock. It was a bit of a change. Uh, I would also say, though, that if you want to do that drive, or, or let's say if you want to go from, you know, where you grew up and you want to see something completely and utterly different. Okay, I've done two major road trips in my life. One was going out to California and seeing the country uh, from that perspective, you know, of, look, I grew up in middle America and Illinois, and I want to see everything going all the way out west. The the desert um, aesthetic was something I kind of eased into, I believe, when I got around New Mexico. And I just found it very peaceful and calming. You know, very easy to drive through. Nothing, nothing was too out of the ordinary. At the same time, though, you, you know, you just sort of start to appreciate this this country side that we get to you know see at home a little bit more. Because I went from living in very green areas to living in not so green areas. So when I would go closer to Los Angeles and start seeing green trees in places, I felt like I was like closer to home. If that makes any sense. No. Like I mean, if you've been to something like a Joshua Tree Park, like. It's a desert park with Joshua trees. It's very unique. It's something you'll see, you'll never forget, right? But when you're driving from a true desert, like, say, the Palm Springs area, and then you go into, you know, you have mountains around you, which is interesting, um, to say the least, because you're, like, in a desert, but there's mountains right next to you. When you start to first see, like, uh, pine-like trees, you know, which, by the way, they have a lot of in, like, northern California. There's a lot of forests. Um, when you start seeing little patches of that as you get closer to a larger metropolitan area, um, you start to be like, wait a minute, did I cross borders, I, you know, state borders I shouldn't have? Like, where am I at here? But then you realize, nah, it's just it, it, the desert is, is a unique atmosphere in and of itself. And driving through it and living in it, I do miss it. I have to be honest with you from time to time because I felt like it was a really interesting place to drive at night. Versus, you know, where I'm from, which is when you're driving at night, you really just have to watch for deer. Out there, that, that wasn't really a problem. They didn't really run through um, the desert like, like you would, you know, see around home and farmland and things like that. Because the farmland out there is vastly different. Wow. The things they grow, the things that they, they work on, you know, maintaining, their, their products are very different than ours. Our soybean, corn, et cetera. Um, massive amount of product. Well, we talk so. all we talk all the time about some of the benefits of this area and granted you don't have it's that whole right wait 10 minutes the weather's going to change and we don't have yeah. you know the the best weather in the winter and and you know part of but it's kind of a badge of honor, you know, we we accept the fact that we're kind of tough and that it's cold and it's sure. weary, but here's some of the upsides of it too. You mentioned you won't necessarily have a deer, but uh, we don't have, let's say, in the Southwest, you know, where you could have scorpions in your shoes or rattlesnakes or or some of yeah. those other things that are that are out there. Is that we just, you know, and I know three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred people will mention we do have coyotes and occasionally, you know, people will see we a do. mountain lion or someone will say that, but you know, we don't have for the most part, we don't have a lot of tornadoes. You know, it's not like Oklahoma or Kansas where it's happening every every right. year every season. We don't have hurricanes. We don't have you know, tidal waves and tsunamis, and there's a lot of things that we don't necessarily have here that other places have that they have to deal with on sort of the sort of the normal kind of danger side of things that they'll have to deal with. So uh, let the listeners know we're talking with Blockbuster Blake Stubbs. He is talking. He's calling us from Peoria. We're talking about the road trip side. When we come back from this break, we're going to talk about not only the destination where you end up getting to, but a lot of that stuff in the middle, maybe the world's largest ball of twine or some of those other attractions that you may see and get lured into along the way. So keep it here. We'll talk with Blake in just a second. It's staying on 720 WG.
720 W. Janet is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago. Tom Hush in the booth. Spinning the hits, sort of a bumper savant, right? And I'm not sure if you chose this one because we are talking about road trips, destinations, going someplace. Those places could be somewhere beyond the sea. I don't know. Or they could be Peoria. Who knows? And depending on the size of the sea, uh, Blake Stubbs could be there uh, in, in a boat. Blake, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So in the middle, were you? Now, you had destination in mind. You were going from point A to point out west. But, you know, that's why... Yeah. They have built those big billboards and all those roadside attractions and a lot of that stuff to mm-hmm. to lure uh, people into to to their I guess web of entertainment. So when it, when it came to that, were there things that you could either recommend or did you just kind of power through or did you stop and enjoy a little bit of the local color? Well, it's funny. My drive out and my drive back were really power through drives uh, because of work. So I was trying to get out there to start work. And then when work wrapped up there, then I came back and went right into another job. So while I didn't really get to stop and do a lot of the roadside attraction stuff, I mean, it's everywhere. That's very true. I mean, if you're looking for something to just kind of take your mind off the road, because let's be honest, like, when people get behind the wheel and they're going to do a long drive, long road trip style drive, sometimes it's best to not have a plan and, and other than the destination. And you can hit everything along the way and sort of take it in and look, you're going to find all kinds of interesting slices of Americana when you do that. I, on the other hand, had a very set agenda. And so I had to get out there very quickly, uh, aside from, you know, gas and hotel for sleep, because I did it in two days both ways. Um, I found that I could have, you know, probably made it a five-day drive if I wanted to <laughs> with the amount of stuff that I was, uh, you know, able to, to stop for if I had the time. But I was, again, I was on very tight schedules. And I think you'll find that, too. Like, sometimes it, you realize it was a road trip, but at the same time, it was like, no, I, I felt like I was just, it was just moving across country and back. Uh, but in the, in the time of getting there and everything, there's a lot to take in just scenery-wise, especially if you never grew up around mountains. Right, like you'll see mountains. You might take some mountain roads uh, on your route to get there. I will say this though: I did not have a planned route. I mean, I did have a guide in terms of the GPS, and I had looked at maps and kind of plotted how I wanted to to get out to Southern California. But at the same time, I was like, I don't really want to feel too locked into this because I don't know what I'm going to miss out on. Oh, wow. And I think that there's something to take away from that. I think that's the way to do it. If you're going to have a road trip where it's maybe it's you and the family, or maybe it's just you uh, or you and, you know, one other person, a best friend or a significant other, if you're going to do those things, you know, maybe just pick a destination, but how you get there, like the journey itself. And I believe that's like an old proverb as well. Um, But, you know, it's, it's the journey itself and and what you encounter along the way. And if you're not in any kind of hurry, yeah, make those stops, check out the arts, you know, check out all those shops and you know attractions and things if the biggest ball of yarn is there go get a picture in front of it like have fun with it you know hey, wait wait tom's got a question yeah hey blake yeah. have you have you ever been to uh the world's largest truck stop on i-80 <laughs> i have i have once very quickly to use the bathroom and then get back on the road. <laughs> but yeah. Tom, what's so big about, is it just the fact that it's got the most amount of pumps? It's got the largest store, square footage of the lot. What about it? Is is it is it multi-story? What about it makes it big? You know, I won't lie to you. I don't have the specific stats on what makes <laughs> the, the tr- that truck stop the largest truck stop in the world. It seems to have a lot of pumps. 
Uh, <laughs> I don't know how many how many pumps a truck stop normally has. Well, but, this would be more because it's yeah. What, whatever you think there should be there, maybe times ten, and then you've got the world's largest truck stop. Uh, but I was just shocked by how many cool things you could buy there. Like you know, they've got like a Taco Bell and a Wendy's in there and stuff. But uh, what really caught my eye was some of the trinkets. Like you can get these beautiful candles that that look like pies. <laughs> Like so, they got like little strawberries in in the pie. It looked like a real pie. We walked in. I was like, "Oh, cool! They sell pie here." And my girlfriend said, "No, that's a candle. That's America. That. That's it, it was amazing. It's a oh, no. Okay, so that's awesome. Got to well, we should have a whole segment just about that. And so three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. Your best road trip, even if it is to that biggest truck stop. But now, Blake, there's also a cautionary tale that goes along with it. You could be lured in by those billboards that say, hey, you got to stop here, you got to stop there. But we all remember National Lampoon's Vacation where you, it, even if, the, let's say, the road isn't dangerous, you know, you may pull into that small right. town where the, the local sheriff slash repair guy says how much you got, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I was going to say uh, sheriff slash mechanic slash extortionist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, no, that that's another thing, too. And I, I think that there's something to be said for, you know, you have that destination in mind, maybe take a few adventurous turns here and there based on the billboards. But here's the thing. If you're going to make those choices, typically those billboards come quite a ways out. Uh, if you have somebody in the car with you or, or van or whatever, uh, do some do some Googling. You know, find out if this is legitimate. Uh, and if it's a legitimate right turn worthy, then take it and see see what happens there. Because, look, for all you know, the best meal of your life you could have at one of those places. You could find some really cool trinket. You could have a great family picture or, you know, just gag picture, whatever it may be. Well, okay. It's part of, like, adding on to the experience, well, right? Let, like, that's the whole drive. Let the listeners know we talk with Blockbuster Blake Stubbs. <laughs> now, he has done one of the enviable trips, and I'm sure... Uh, listeners, 312-981-7200 that are thinking about maybe sharing your favorite road trip of all time. I think one of the ones everybody would want to do, it adds a little bit of danger into just the, just the scenery and the local residents. You know, if it's wild animals or Kodiak mm-hmm. bears or moose or whatever, you've actually taken a road trip across Alaska. How does someone, because for the most part, I don't know, that can you can you drive just straight to Alaska or do you got to take one of those seaplanes and land there? How does that work? So you can. Um, what happened was the reason I got to go was the first video project I ever worked on outside of, you know, having a hobby of like, you know, editing little short films for my comedy group in college. Um, I met someone who was going up there to film uh, wildlife, vegetation, landscapes. Basically, the idea was showcase Alaska on video and in photo in a way that everything is untouched by man. So, you know, we weren't there to interrupt. We were there to document um, but to get there, I flew, uh, and the person I worked for also flew. Now, years later, he would then get a um, large truck, uh, trailer, and drive with family up there and made it like a two-week trip through the U.S., Canada, all the way up to Alaska, and then stayed in um, a little town called Tok, uh, T-O-K, Tok, Alaska. Uh, it has just the state trooper like outpost there, but there really is no other law. I don't believe they even have really a local government. Um, it's just there's like a grocery <laughs> store, a couple restaurants, um, you know, a clothing store, and then everybody just kind of keeps to themselves. It's a nice, quiet community. Um, Toke is also one of the spots in Alaska that, during certain parts of the year, will have the best weather in the entire state, um, as I remember it. Because when I was there, it was incredibly, like, temperate. It was great. Not too humid. It wasn't too hot or too cold. But then it also can hit, like, minus 40 below. 
And so you'll see, like, you know, the nuts and bolts on, like, doors and stuff, like, freezing. Uh, so it, it can be very, you know, polar uh, opposite in a lot of ways in terms of its weather. But what I ended up doing was, you know, I went to Valdez, Alaska. Um, we filmed some, uh, you know, I got to see otters in their natural habitat, like swimming around, seals, uh, eagles. A lot of eagles were flying around up there, which is something you don't see every day um, in central Illinois. Uh, but on the on the same token too, we went to Denali National Park. Um, I ended up staying uh, it, around the park there, and then we we walked, hiked on the tundra. So I mean, look, Alaska is much more. If you're not just taking a cruise uh, up there, uh, you can make it much more of a robust outdoor type trip, and that's really what mine was for two weeks living in an RV. We would just stay a couple of days in one location and move on to the next, and. You know, there are, there's touristy elements to it. Uh, I actually ended up flying out of Talkeetna, which is a town that um, Northern Exposure, the television show, uh, was based off of, or parts of it were based off of. But the uh, they have an uh, airport there, which many communities in Alaska have, because a lot of people own planes, and that's how they get around. But uh, there's, a, a like, a rescue crew that will actually fly people up on a glacier, and you can walk around at, like, an incredible elevation and you, you you find out you're walking on like thousands of feet of like a thousand feet of snow and then it's ice all underneath it and, but it's like rock solid and they can land planes on it up there uh and and that was a pretty thrilling experience to be able to fly around um you know the mountains and just kind of take it all in i, I have to be honest like getting back to alaska is one of my life's ambitions that trip was in 2007 uh, I was in college. I was so impressionable and, like, interested in taking in everything around me. But now I'm like, I feel like I'd be way more interested in going now than when I was even then because I was young. You know, I mean, it was a cool trip to me then, but now I feel like there's just a lot more uh, now that I've got some, you know, years and more experience on me where I'm like, oh, I feel like I would take that in a whole other direction. You know, see some other locations. I didn't get to make it to the Arctic Circle. You know, so that's another thing. Going to a place on a road trip, I think, is cool. But you can always go back if you don't get to do everything you wanted to do. So I have a goal to get back there and see it again. You wonder if you know, as a, as a younger guy where you're just kind of taking it in, but maybe like you had mentioned too, is that you're not like fully conscious of just how significant, how important, how powerful all of these things are. And then maybe also you're maybe not as maybe aware of just how kind of rugged and dangerous it is, because I would be thinking, you know, if, if it gets 40 below, and of course every single car has a, as an electrical cord coming out the front because it freezes. And of course you've got wildlife and you've got bears. And if your car breaks down, you could be eaten or freeze to death or whatever. Is that there's just sort of an extra kind of level of danger kind of built into the whole scenario? I mean, you've got to, you've got to respect the place. So Blake, hold tight because we are going to take a quick break and we come back uh, three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. We're gonna be able to take Jill. Hold on the line, and we've got a few other people. We're gonna talk about other people's road trips that they're gonna take, and then we're gonna get a couple minutes from Blake. People are wondering Wilfred Brimley, one of our great actors. We've lost him. He's got thoughts on his career and his extended and, and almost unknown, still existing life. Right. So keep it here uh, with Blake. It's Dane here on seven twenty WGN. Seven twenty WGN uh, here WGN high atop Chicago in for Nick until four a.m. 
and on the line with us back for a couple minutes, uh, we have Blockbuster Blake Stubbs. And the one thing when we heard, of course, and and thoughts and prayers to his his family and, of course, all of his friends out there that that Wilfred Brimley had passed. I I found it. it, There's so many people. One of the, the kind of the common comments was that they thought he had died years ago. And and when I looked up, I'm like, geez. Cocoon, when that came out, he was one of the elderly retirees that was about to die if he didn't have, you know, the egg to like the alien egg to give him energy. He was only 49 when they were filming that mm-hmm. <laughs> that movie. So Wilfred Brimley looked old his whole life. He certainly had in his career, he certainly had a look uh, and, and a way. And I, I what I find when I look into actors careers i mean certainly i you know after they passed on certainly there's films we could all talk about our favorite Wil- uh, wilford brimley film um you know and everyone probably knows him from the quaker uh oats uh commercials uh and also from the american diabetes association for which he was a spokesperson uh the for me though i like reading what directors and other actors have to say about them you know, I, I, like, what was the impression that they left in the industry and, and the people that they worked with? Because, granted, I never met Wilford Brimley. However, I did, pro, you know, profoundly respect the work that he did, especially in quite a few films that I'm very partial to. Uh, and he's a guy who did everything. He did television. He did film. You know, the first credit that he has is for True Grit with John Wayne. Wow. Uh, now, he had a minor role. He was uncredited, but that goes back to 1969. That was the first credit to his name. Now, you know, he was on The Waltons, which was a big hit in my my house growing up. My mom was a big fan of that show. Um, for me, I love him in John Carpenter's The Thing. And Carpenter posted an incredible tweet about how Wilfred Brimley was basically the genuine article. He was a cowboy, he was a fine actor, and he was a darn good human being. That's the type of stuff you want to see about somebody who was 85 years old when they passed, had a wealth of, of credits to their name. In fact, he had 77 acting credits. There's a film that apparently he was scheduled to be in that was in pre-production, so apparently they will be replacing him in that. Um, but, you know, he was a semi-retired actor here for the last few years. He had very few credits since um, 2009. He did two two things in that, and that year, and then he's only had three credits since. Um, but, you know, 85 years old, he, he was in quite a few films, and i got to tell you, the one shot of Wilford Brimley that I'll never get out of my head, as much as I love him in The, the Thing, it will come from uh, John Woo's Hard Target, where I have to say Wilford Brimley uh, is the inspiration for the Lonely Island song, Good Guys Don't Look at Explosions, uh, because he's riding a horse as a massive building explodes behind him. And he did the stunt uh, because he was an expert you know, horse rider. He was expert on horseback. So I, just that kind of guy, the genuine article, you know, go, go look for negative stories about Brimley. You won't find him. He, seemed, uh, he had a storied career. Great he, guy. He, apparently. he seemed, but he always seemed like he was like, he would be typecast as sort of the curmudgeon. Like he always seemed cause he was kind of crappy right. and, uh, and Blake, we were, we're all, I think fans of John Carpenter's the thing. And uh, Tom and I were talking Sure. Um, before we went on about about him in that movie, when you think of that movie, what is yes. a, what is a scene that comes to mind? And we'll see if it matches up with what we were thinking. For me, it's well, my favorite Brimley moment in the thing is when he's in the shed in isolation, and you know <laughs> that he has been inhabited by the thing. And there's the noose hanging, and he says, "I, I don't want to be out here anymore." There's like a genuine, like it, it's like the thing got being human right. 
uh, because it's very hard to watch because you don't want to leave the guy out there, but you've got to leave the guy out there. And and that's Brimley. I mean, that was it. He he totally had a great grasp of, of the scene work that he was doing. Um, if you ever get a chance and, and you're a fan of the thing, but you, you don't have like a personalized copy with a great, um, you know, commentary track on it, there is a commentary track that's done by Carpenter and Kurt Russell, who, Dane, you know, I'm a big fan of Kurt Russell. Sure. Um, but Russell is cackling through the entire thing, laughing so hard because there's so many fun stories about when they were making that movie, which, by the way, they, you know, by all accounts, they didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, it was it was a special effects, you know, nightmare in a lot of ways, but also a special effects innovation, you know, type film in a lot of ways. So there's just a lot of humor, but there's not a single moment where they don't see Brimley. And he's just like the the light of their eye. And you can just tell that they're enjoying talking about him. The other great scene of him is when he's going crazy, breaking everything. Because Carpenter just put two cameras on him and said, go crazy. Go absolutely crazy. And and Russell, when he comes in, the, the, the end of it is when he you know pushes a table with him to try to get him to stop being violent. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I had to be very careful not to slam him into the wall. But he told me, just come at me. You know, just do what you got to do. And and I I think um, you know that's one film of many, but Brimley was the kind of guy where for a lot of people he's a character actor, but for people who adore character actors he was so much more than that. Yeah, he brought so much to the screen. He brought so much to the way he delivered his lines. There was a lot uh, to say about the presence that he brought to the screen, whether it was a, a, a film, the big screen, or the small screen at home. Um, because, you know, he did everything. He did TV, he did movies, TV movies. He wasn't, he was an actor's actor, I guess, in a lot of ways. That's the easiest way to describe it. He was truly an actor's actor and a downright good human being, as as you'll find when you start reading about people who worked with him and what they had to say about being around him on set and in ma- in creating, you know, and being artists with him. Yeah, and he'll, so, he'll be missed, and of course that whole setup up there would be like the, that's what it reminds me of is if I took a road trip to Alaska, I'd end up, uh, you know, with a, a Wilfred Brimley type character locked in a shed asking me, saying, I'm okay. <laughs> Like, let me out. Well, Blake, we're going to let you get back to it. And uh, thanks so much for sharing uh, more than just movies, which is, of course, those great road trips. And we're going to talk with uh, some of the listeners about those. You've inspired some people to get in on things. Sure. So I appreciate it. And, uh, and of course, give your social media so people can follow your adventures. Continue that oh, yeah. conversation on road trips or movies. If you want to chat with me a bit more, you can find me on Twitter at Blake Stubbs, B-L-A-K-E-S-T-U-B-B-S. Blake Stubbs. Thanks, Blake. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Have a great one. All right. And uh, so 312-981-7200, if you have a road trip that you got a chance to to take or one that you would suggest for the listeners, especially now when kind of travel and vacations and, and kind of getting out there is more difficult than ever. Some of the obvious choices aren't available, but some of those great choices are available and people are doing that. We've got Jill on the line. Jill, welcome to the show. Hiya. Um, so when I was a kid, I was about four or five, we went, we took a car ride to uh, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. And one of my parents' friends said, now there were three of us, okay, and I was the youngest, and I always had to sit on the hump. And (laughs) it was a Pontiac Ventura, so it was the mid-70s. And um, it was a 14-hour drive, and my parents' friend said, oh, you know what, just drive at night, the kids will sleep. Not a problem. It'll be an easy drive. We were so excited. He didn't sleep at all. (laughs) All three of us were up the whole time. 
And then um, when we got there, one of the day trips we were going to take was to, they had this um, this bedrock, the city of bedrock. It was like remade up there. Like the Flintstones? Yeah. Okay. It was, it was really cool. But the whole day we argued, the three of us, about who was going to drive the car. Because you could, the, one of the rides was to um, ride Barney's car or Fred's car. <laughs> and when we got in, there's already, the, there's a, like a ride operator ride, driving the car for you. <laughs> We were still half our day arguing about who was going to drive the car. <laughs> it turns out no one's going to drive the car. Now, this was back in the day. Now, we've got three kids, and so they've got tablets and phones, and they can kind of stay mm-hmm. occupied, and they just kind of look at that. When when you were a kid and, and when I was a kid, we didn't have that, and so you had to kind of, uh, if you were awake and excited about something, you sort of had to manage not only your, your boredom but car sickness and, and just the time. Did you do any of those, like, look out the window games, like punch bug, or, or what kind of things did you do to pass the time while you were? Well, a lot of times, well, we listened to the radio, and we loved, like, listening to the local radio stations as, you know, because that's what you used to do before satellite. You used to just listen to all the local uh, radio stations as you went through each state. And so that was kind of fun to hear, like, the different radio stations, what had a similar format, what, you know, there were some, you know, states that had only country music was dominant. You know, it's just kind of a cool thing. And we used to look at, um, we used to play um, uh, bingo, like, with the, with the, uh, not bingo, but like like with the alphabet where you try, I see an A, yeah, I see a B, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and that sort of thing. So it was just, you know, we passed the time, but... And the last I, last thing is like as far as like the the eating and the stopping when we talked with Blake like he was he was busy trying to get from point A to point B so it was tough to kind of lure him into some of those things but as far as like roadside places to stop did you guys do like any kind of Howard Johnsons or Stuckies or any of that kind Stuckies. of stuff Stuckies was <laughs> yeah Stuckies and Howard Johnsons I re- I remember those pretty well and then every once in a while you find like a mom and pop place um, you know hole in the wall kind of diner and that was had like the best food <laughs> that's it that's it all right well thanks Jill appreciate you weighing in sure all Bye. right three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred your favorite road trips. Of all time, we're going to take a break in a, in a couple minutes. But I'm trying to think. Like Tom, do you have? Did you ever do that whole get in the car, family truckster thing, and oh, man. like head off someplace? <laughs> uh, no, not really. <laughs> what do you mean? We flew a lot of places. Like I, I did a lot of international travel. That doesn't count. This I know that it's it's not exactly a road <laughs> trip, but listen, there's no road that goes to Venice. You know, it's just you gotta fly. You gotta or, or take a ship. You gotta fly. Well, three one two ninety one seventy two hundred. The inspiration that's out there. If you've got a road trip recommended or something that you've done that you could sec- suggest to the the listeners, and I, I've done like a bunch of those road trips, and we're doing them now, like with the kids, because the um, you know our in laws live down in. Uh, in the in Florida, in the villages. Of course, you wouldn't want to go there now because, of course, the quarantine and all that kind of stuff. But you take those trips down there, and it's gotten so much, I don't want to say easier, uh, as far as just kind of being able to do it. I think as you get a little bit older. But when you're a kid, it was hard. Man. If it was three, four hours, five hours, that seemed like almost an eternity. And if you didn't have... See, now you've got satellite radio, which you're able to kind of tune into things that you sort of like. If you were left to kind of just... Uh, I don't know, because we are so blessed, you know, people here in Chicago to be able to have a bunch of different stations, whether it's talk stuff or country, you know, whatever kind of music you want, you can find something. But as you get out a little bit into the uh, into the world, it's a little tougher. 
It's a lot of, and the Lord said, you know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a bunch of things. 312 we are going to touch on some of those. Plus, we're going to talk about uh, some of your first jobs ever. We were talking off the air a little bit about that, and I think Nick had talked about maybe some summer jobs that are going on. But uh, if you've got a first, kind of a crazy first job, doesn't have to be the exact first job, but if it's one of those first jobs that you had kind of introducing yourself into the workforce, but in something a little non-traditional, um, you can go ahead and share that with us as well. We've got a couple to share. I know Tom's got a great one, and I've got a couple as well. So road trips that you took, whether it was with the family or ones that you'd suggest people can take now, especially during the pandemic, or if you have a crazy first job that you had that you want to share, um, that would be something that would be interesting as well. 312-981-7200. Quick break. It's staying here with you, 720 WGN. Hall and Oates. Nice. All right, 720. Uh, WGN is Dane here in for Nick until 4 a.m. Uh, and excited to, to talk about a couple different topics before we get to. We're going to have uh, the historian for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway talk about the history as they change history. And we kind of get into that 500 that's going to come up. Uh, a little bit later this month. Uh, we're going to have Murr from Impractical Jokers on with us as well. We've got a couple topics that we're kind of talking about that have been ro- kind of road trips as people kind of get out there and try to figure out some things to do, places to go during the pandemic and some of those suggestions uh, that people had. And then through the process of, of just kind of talking about things, Tom and I had kind of talked about something that was similar to to something that Nick had brought up as far as jobs, odd jobs. Uh, and we were talking about some of your first jobs, some of the first jobs that you've ever had. So three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred doesn't have to be super crazy, but that helps, right? That's more funny. So I think that um, one of the first jobs I had was detasseling corn, which is if you've ever heard of doing that, it's you kind of walk through a cornfield and you kind of just detassel it and break it off, very uh, kind of at one with nature sort of farming stuff. And then uh, one of the first ones that was was kind of odd that you and I talked about is I was the like a flower delivery guy in college. And so I had the opportunity to deliver flowers. Now this is when you look at a job, you know, as far as if people are happy to see you, if you're, I think delivering, you know, subpoenas, maybe people aren't as happy to see you. Or if you're, if you're a code enforcement officer, maybe not so much, but flowers, people are usually happy to get flowers. And so all in all is a relatively, you know, kind of pleasant existence. Got a couple tips here and there. You're making people happy. One of the odd parts about that job was also is that I, the the florist that I was working with, I had to deliver to the funeral homes in the area. So a number of different funeral homes in different neighboring towns. And so we had keys to all the funeral homes. So I would have to go and set up the flowers. You know, I'd have a van. I'd be by myself. I'm driving to this place. And oftentimes, since I had the keys, there wasn't even the funeral people weren't even there. So you would just... Go, you'd let yourself in and then you'd have to set up. And sometimes it was, you know, just one little pot of something or whatever. And then some, you know, sometimes it was a pretty ornate, you know, kind of a complicated setup might take you 15 minutes or so to set the thing up. And there would be a, you know, a deceased person there that you did not know. Now, normally, at least at that point, I think probably for most people, unless you're sort of a homicide investigator or something, you're not oftentimes coming into contact with, you know, people that are dead or deceased that that you don't know, right? And if it's your family, then you kind of get that. And there's a whole other dynamic of, of kind of familiarity and sadness that kind of gets into it. But when it's a, a complete stranger and you're there by yourself in a room with them, and you're setting stuff up. And sometimes there wasn't, like I said, no one from the funeral home was there. There certainly wasn't any other people. So I would find myself, Tom, talking to 
the person just kind of like, hey, I'm just going to go set these flowers up over here. You know, it wasn't that Your I thought. Your family sure likes you. Well, you know, you, well, I think it was it was customary. What I would typically do is I would offer some condolences, you know, like, I this, ah, it sucks. You know, I, it's, it's, you know, I don't know what you say. You turn, you turn to a dead guy and just said, yeah, tough break, buddy. Well, I mean, you know? I don't know why, but I felt like the need to at least address them, you know, because they're there sure. in the room. And so I was able to like, you know, but then it was still weird. So you have to turn your back on them. There's no one else there. We've all seen enough, you know, movies where somebody, you know, pops up and, you know, or whatever. Well, that'd so. be my greatest fear is that if, if so help me God, one noise comes from behind me from that casket. I'm out. Well, I wanted to make some kind of a, you know, connection, like an understand, like just say, hey, you know, I'm just here to do this. You know, I'm on your, I'm on team. I get that. I'm on team you, you know. Team uh, John Smith. <laughs> Sometimes it would have that. And just, and thankfully, it was all people that that felt like at least you could say that they lived, you know, a pretty full life. It was, you know, we did generally it, on the older end. They, yeah, they kind of skewed a little bit. It wasn't any like like kids or anything like that, which would have been. I think as crazy as depressing. it sounds, more it would be more scary. Well, certainly depressing, but I think I just would have been more scared. So um, so we were able to work through that, but that was kind of an odd job. Yeah, that's a God. Funeral homes are really weird. I've always I've always been kind of had a weird energy from funeral homes because usually when you walk into a funeral home, that top level is quite nice. You know, it's very you know well furnished. I didn't know like there's that. like a, a sort of hierarchy of levels in the funeral world. Well, I mean, there's I mean they have a, like I don't know if the word is a crypt. Or oh, they have oh. they have a they have a body locker downstairs. Oh, you know that, right? Oh, I didn't. Oh, I thought you were saying like, well, do you want to go to the, you know, to the, I don't know, the the Borigar room? You know, that's well, the nicer room with the better stuff, and then that's up higher. <laughs> you just meant like, hey, it's normal, you know, it's, with yeah, it's normal house plants and chairs, and then yeah, below uh, it's a dungeon of, of it's, it's a dungeon. Dead guys. I actually I, I accidentally went down into the. The dead guy room one time. For what reason? What were you doing? Oh, is this you so took the wrong term looking yeah, for the. No, I was, I was at a wake. You know, I was at a wake. I go to wakes every once in a sure, while. Sure, of it course. Yeah. It wasn't a close family member, but you know, you pay respects, you know, you sample the tea and coffee that they have and everything like that. <laughs> um, but I was trying to find my way to the bathroom and uh, I asked one of the funeral directors or something. I was like, oh, excuse me, do you, where's your washroom? He's like, uh, there's and one here, but I think it's occupied. So uh, why don't you go down where we wash the bodies? Yeah. Is that what he said? No, he just he said there's another one downstairs. There's an, just he just said there's another one downstairs because the one up up near the, you know the actual funeral rooms, the parlors, right. uh, it was it was taken. It was being used. So uh, instead of taking the stairs, there was an elevator right nearby. I was like, okay, well I'll take that one. And I, you know, get in the elevator. I wasn't sure which button to hit. Uh, and I figured, well, this is ground level. He said downstairs. He right? said downstairs. There's a button here that says B. I mean, I'm guessing that means basement, but I'm guessing the basement. They might have, you know, uh, something down there, a restroom or something like that. So I go down. And uh, what was that like? That's kind of. Well, I was. I felt. I felt like I was going to walk out and be like, ah, yes, the restroom. Where I can go and do my business. Um, <laughs> get down. The doors open. It's completely dark. Wait, um, it's completely no, don't tell dark. me just yet because I'm thinking in my mind a lot of just like like bare concrete kind of stuff. Like they yeah. would wouldn't. Well, even... I could not. I couldn't even see what it was in front of me. Oh jeez. So I was like, well, this is weird. And I go ahead and I pull out my cell phone, which has a flashlight on the back. 
This sounds like. And I'm dead. I'm hundred percent, hundred percent. Pull out my cell phone so I can look for a light, so I can look for a s- switch, and I'm panning my flashlight around, and all of a sudden I come across a toe. What? A no way. Foot. Yeah, foot, toe tag, and everything. Really? Yeah. So now, was this a? Did you feel like it was it was in a refrigerated area? Because normally, I guess so. I don't know. I didn't really notice. Controlled. It must have been, but I immediately panicked. This all happened in the space of about a minute. but So 60 seconds, I'm in the elevator, I'm in the basement, I don't. none of the lights are on, I pull out my cell phone, fl- you know, it's literally just a single motion, just like, oh, okay, let's see, where's the light around here? Body with a toe tag on it. I immediately ran, I jumped back into the elevator, started smashing, smashing, smashing the up button, and I just, I was like, nope, can't handle this can't handle this at all um that's traumatic it was it was really weird i mean granted i was like 14 i was 14 15 so it's not like i hadn't yeah i i didn't it didn't destroy my psyche i wasn't helpful you know and i don't know like the typical funeral home like what like how how much is you know going on you know i don't know if there's if there's always like people backed up oh i'm so busy today i've got to yeah. involve like like 10 people or if it's you know i think some places obviously are busier than others but but i don't know how it is and you you ever know like if you've ever been in the kitchen of some restaurants as opposed to like what the front of the house looks like may look all organized and whatever and then the back could be crazy you know there could be a you know a big tub of sauce that's holding a door open or whatever right it, it doesn't right, have that yeah. whole kind of Put together feeling. Um, yeah, the put the put together feeling. Like they got people stacked up in the well, back. You know what they say, Dane? Never learn how sausages are made, or laws are made, or how bodies are embalmed. I think that's the same. You just you added the the bodies yeah, involved. You know, never learn how sausages or laws are made, and nor find out how bodies are embalmed oh, because yeah. it is a it is a necessary but somewhat grim process yeah yeah well, a lot of formaldehyde if i've been told correctly but i don't know if that's modern no i think i think so with 312 any funeral any workers, funeral directors out there that, they want to share exactly how that kind of stuff works but you were able to get back up into the into the welcoming arms of your bereaved you know family or yeah. friends or whatever so it wasn't as though you were just stuck in this place all by yourself yeah no i went there. i was able to get immediately back up and, so uh, that was just an experience that's a, a little bit crazy, but that wasn't one of your first jobs. So one of your first jobs was actually something that that a lot of people have had, you yeah, know, some kind of contact sure. with. But who's actually worked at one? I don't know anybody else who's worked at. Uh, it was a dry cleaners, right? Yeah, I worked at a dry cleaner slash laundromat. So we would do we would do regular laundry too for the most part. If it's something didn't need to be dry cleaned, we would just wash it. You know, press your shirts and everything like that. The typical. Uh, sort of place. It's a, it's, there's a lot that goes into a uh, working at dry cleaners, and it's always like 200 degrees. It's always super duper hot, no matter what. Well, and and I worked a... there for a summer too, so it was hot outside and it was hotter inside. Is there anything super dangerous about it? Because there's some jobs that you don't necessarily think of as dangerous, but I always looked when I would see sort of this. If we'll remember, and of course, listeners, if you can think of it, you know that whole kind of conveyor belt of clothes that's all yeah. sort of moving that could someone could get caught on one of those or <laughs> maybe like one of the heat presser things and then you've got all these crazy chemicals right yeah i don't i don't recall anybody getting super maimed but 
Uh, there were probably, you know, a few heat accidents here. You burn yourself every once in a while. Maybe you get some chemical on your pants and they, they, uh, stain or turn color. Like they get bleached or something like that. Uh, most of the time I had to wear a lot, I had to wear bandages on my thumbs a lot because I had this, uh, I, I would have to tag the laundry because it was an overnight laundry. So it just, it would just, I mean. Yeah, always have that little kind of white tag that's got a yeah, num- exactly. uh, reference number, yeah, reference right? reference number. Like a valet for your clothes. But, uh. Yeah, it was one of those things where if you dropped off your clothes by, I want to say, I don't know, 11 in the morning, they would be done the next day. So we had to move quickly because everybody's running into this dry cleaners to get in before 11 so they get their shirts the next day. If you get it after 11, you have to wait like a full, you know, cycle or something like that. But they can guarantee next day if you bring it in before 11. So I used to, it was like almost a needle and I would often poke myself in the thumb, you know, try, you know, you take the clothing tag. That's where you put the, the, the reference tag. And I once accidentally tagged my own finger. I I put a laundry tag through my own thumb and it was, it was like that for two hours because they were just like, well, just go wash it off. I was like, yeah, but I have to get the tag out of my thumb. They were like, ah, don't worry. Just put on a glove for a bit. I was like, okay, but I still have to get this tag out of my thumb. Look at that, that dedication to the workplace, dealing with not only you know, bodily harm, physical harm, yeah. danger, danger, right? Chemicals and all that kind of stuff. And that's just the customers. You know? And that's just that's, the guys. Right. Customers. Three one two ninety one seventy two hundred. Your thoughts on middle uh, of those early jobs and also the road trips, and we were doing that as well. When we come back from the news, we're going to have. You talk about uh, roads and trips and history. Donald Davidson, the historian for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is going to be joining us to talk a little bit about the history of the past and the brand new future coming up with the Indy 500. Uh, it's Dane here, 720 WGN. Bottom line, there's been six times that it wasn't held, 17 and 18, and then 42 through 45. But since then, all of this history with occasional postponements and delays by rain it has never gone later than may the 31st we've never gone to june 1 so this will make history this year hi this is donald davidson i'm the historian with the indianapolis motor speedway and you're on the road with dane on wtm has a presence about it, and uh, I believe that. I think the place has vibes because so much has, uh, has, uh, has happened here. 720 WGN on the road with Dane, typically high atop Chicago in the Skyline studios, but now, of course, in the broadcast bunker as we kind of wait out in anticipation for all of those things that we know and love when it comes to the world of sporting, when it comes to the world of motorsport, is the things happening in Indianapolis. On the line with us, excited to have a guy since 1964, has worked in and around in writing and radio and television around the most iconic sporting venue in the world, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And now, of course, he is the IMS Foundation track historian. He is with us, the one and only Donald Davidson. Donald, welcome to WGN. 
Thank you, sir, very much. Well, it's great to have you. And I know when it comes to history, in a little bit we talked off the air, of course, Indianapolis, when it comes to motorsports, unparalleled. And when it comes to radio, you know, we've been around, you know, almost 100 years as well ourselves. Absolutely. In fact, the first major station to broadcast from the Indianapolis Speedway was WGN. Apparently, uh, from what we've been able to find in 1922, there were two attempts at broadcasting, but they were little more than ham radio operators. And the first station of note was uh, WGN uh, from Chicago in 1924. And uh, they had a broadcaster named Quinn Ryan who did the uh, the early broadcast. They didn't do the whole race, but they would do a little bit at the beginning, you know, like 15 minutes before the start, 15 minutes in, and then they would do the finish and maybe just little updates in between. But uh, that goes back, well, you know, the 500 was first held in 1911, but they didn't have radio yet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Well, you know, as part of the DNA of WGN has always been sports. Exciting to hear that connection as well. I'm going to have to mention that all the time. Quinn Ryan is one of the members of uh, WGN's illustrious Walk of Fame, so one of those kind of pioneer broadcasters, yep. and cool to see that he's got that connection with the Brickyard. So, you know, the famous slogan that you always hear, and, and you as part of your radio show that you do in May is, is that is it May yet? As everyone is excited and looking forward to May as it starts that whole kind of lead up to the 500. It's been replaced now with is it is it August yet? And so and we're hoping basically that that that's even something that can hold true. I remember my first time uh, walking into Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and it wasn't necessarily just about the racing that was going to happen or the racing on the track. It was just the structure itself. It's breathtaking and amazing. And if you can talk a little bit about as a guy who has made his entire career the passion of sharing the history of the Speedway. What was your, your, your kind of first impressions as you and Indy first met? Well, I, I pretty much knew what to expect, so it's a little hard to explain that. I'm actually British, although it doesn't sound like it anymore. <laughs> and uh, I became aware of the Indianapolis 500 in this foreign country when I was just entering my teens, and... Uh, for some reason, there was a fascination there. I had to send away to get information about it because the Brits didn't know much about the Indianapolis 500 then. There was no foreign participation. Anyway, so it became an obsession with me. And so when I finally had saved up enough money to make the trip, it wasn't a casual visit. And so I pretty much knew the lay of the land and what to expect, but it was rather surreal to be walking in and be able to get into the garage area. It was right, rather like, uh, you know, Dorothy and uh, the Wizard of Oz when everything turns to color. Wow. <laughs> and uh, that changed my life forever. I think probably the biggest surprise I had was how friendly the participants were. Uh, I was really amazed by that. I thought drivers would all be very, very intense individuals. And I was amazed at how friendly and easygoing most of them were. So uh, I pretty much lived the dream. And now, right now, we're kind of living in the twilight zone because, as you said, it's always been this huge buildup. And there's tens of thousands of people, spectators, that their whole year evolves around the Indianapolis 500. And they've been going for 30, 40, 50 years, and they have their traditions and where they sit and what they wear and all this stuff. And uh, 
they're going to have to change that this year because it will be in August. And, and uh, people will say, well, that doesn't really matter, does it? Yes, it does, because the light will be different and the shadows will be in different places. It just... Uh, it it will be uh, it'll take a little getting used to. We think of of these as unprecedented times, and in a lot of ways, they are. When it comes to the speedway, the speedway has been around for a long time through lots of trials, tribulations, challenges throughout history. Are there other times, and I'm thinking maybe during wars or things like that, where either the race was either changed, moved, postponed, or maybe just canceled? Yeah, it it was it was not held. Um, from uh, in 1917 and 18, they were down because of World War One, and the infield was an aviation depot. Oh, wow. And then uh, 1942 through 45, shut down again. And uh, this time, it was actually the infield was offered to the government, but uh, it had been fined for landing and and uh, taking off with uh, with World War One. Aircraft, but by World War II, it was outmoded. So the thing just sat there and, and fell into a terrible, deplorable condition. But anyway, the bottom line, uh, there's been six times that it wasn't held, 17 and 18, and then 42 through 45. But since then, it's been held every year. And uh, for many years, it was May the 30th, regardless of the day of the week on which it fell. So up until 1971, the 500 would be on Tuesday or Thursday or whenever that fell, except for Sunday, in which case they go to Monday, May 31st. But anyway, since uh, with with all of that, um, uh, through all of this history, uh, and with occasional postponements and delays by rain, yeah. it has never gone later than May the 31st. We've never gone to June 1, so this will make history this year. It is history, but there are so many people that are committed to having it happen. And when you hear this, think about it, and we'll let the listeners know we're talking with IMS Foundation historian Donald Davidson, is when you hear about things like the Olympics or the the NBA or the Final Four, some of these iconic sporting events happening, and then you think, well, how does that affect what can happen with you know with the Indianapolis 500? It's it's hard to even imagine, but it, I think that commitment because you mentioned some of those people, and it is it's a badge of honor, no pun intended. I know the badges that are such a big part of the festivity, but people do say that there there is almost this kind of rivalry among fans saying, well, I've been here for 40 years, or this is my 35th time that I've attended. People are committed to this. There's almost no way they'll cancel it. I don't know how many times I began to notice this, well, a long time ago, but uh, I've discussed it with all kinds of people and it's just astonishing to me that people will tell you how many times they've gone and and, uh, (laughs) just what you you gave a perfect example there, but throughout the year for me, but certainly on the the weekend of the race, uh, two two days before the race and and on the day before the race where people are arriving and coming into the museum, it seems like everybody will tell you, this is my 37th year, it's my 42nd year, 51st, whatever it is. I wonder if there's another event of any kind in the world where people will do that. And uh, of all of the other major events, I, there, there is a similarity that somebody pointed out, and I, I agree because I've now experienced it. There's a great similarity between the Kentucky Derby and the Indianapolis 500. And I think maybe the the connection is that it is the same event at the same time of year 
at the same location. Because when you think about it, everything else, you know, baseball teams get bought and sold and move and, and you know, the Olympics is, is every four years and, and uh, you know, the Super Bowl or, or World Series, whatever, is always in different locations, whereas this is the same place every year at the same time, except for this year, of course. Donald, that's an, that's an incredible point because we've brought it up. It is one of those sporting events that people who aren't even maybe the most avid motorsports fans are still aware of it. It's on the bucket list of almost everyone, just like, let's say, the Kentucky Derby, even though for the most part people aren't all you know horse racing enthusiasts. And, and I think that's it. And part of it is because it is so much more than the event. It's hard to take away because so much exciting stuff happens on the track, obviously, but it is so much bigger than that. It's an event that transcends the sport that it, that it represents. And because I think of the venue as well, because Indianapolis, I got to tell the listeners too, is that it is, it's one thing to go there on a race day and a race weekend. It's like nothing. Motorsports in general is hard to match, uh, in person as opposed to watching it on television as good as they've gotten with it. But Indianapolis is different in, in ways because there is so much to see, so much history, so much going on. So let's talk a little bit about people or ways that people, once of course we get past this, before we get into some of the online stuff, and that's going to be a big focus is, the the museum there. I mean, there's so much history. It's it's definitely it's a tourist attraction, whether there's a race or not. Oh, certainly. And and by by the way, I agree with everything that you just said. I, I mean, I'm nodding and saying, yep, yep, I agree with everything that you said there. And uh, so, uh, you know, you've got that that large, um, probably I don't know, tens of thousands of people that go. That maybe it's the only automobile race of the year that they go to. Now, the museum. It's open normally. It's closed right now. It's normally open every day of the year, but Christmas and uh, Thanksgiving. But um, uh, it's astonishing that there's always people in the museum, and it doesn't matter whether it's October the 13th or February the 9th. There'll be people in the museum, and the percentage of overseas people is just amazing. They've got a, uh, a way to, well, they've got a, like a touch thing now. It used to be that you wrote your name in a book, but they would have these books, page after page after page. And, uh, you know, it's Japan, Australia, Sweden, Norway. And uh, maybe people had a very casual interest. Maybe they really didn't know. Maybe they couldn't name a single 500 winner. But they come to the museum. And uh, I've had people say that when you come into the track, well, a lot of people say this, that there's a presence and uh, that at the, uh, well, I'll, I'll name drop a little bit. Tony Orlando <laughs> was at the museum for a function several years ago. And he said, you know, I've never been here. But when I came through the tunnel, he said, it was like when I went to the, to the Colosseum in Rome. It has a presence about it. And uh, I believe that. I think the place has vibes because so much has, uh, has, uh, has happened here. But again, it's just that it's a destination that you go to the, uh, to the Indianapolis Speedway uh, and maybe you really don't know anything about racing. So it's just it's amazing that I don't know what the percentage of overseas people would be, but it's probably 30%, I would think, wow. maybe higher. 
on a year-round basis. I wonder if that is that the the Indianapolis or the Speedway Indiana Visitor and Tourism Bureau that's out there working it, or is it like you said, it's just kind of the magic of either all that history, what it represents, what it represents in the world of racing for sure, but also in the world in just the Americana. And I think about this: is there are drivers from that have had success in in all yeah. other disciplines of racing that that is one of the things that they want to find a way to get to and compete in and hopefully win. So even in the world of motorsports, Indianapolis and success there transcends even even success in other areas of it, which I don't think is the case. I don't think that, you know, Joe Montana is is wanting to go win a World Cup, you know, or uh-huh. or or something else in, in a different just discipline as far as what it is he's doing on the athletic side. So as a guy that never gets surprised because you know everything, you're the you're the historian. Uh-huh. Before we get to the online stuff, has it ever surprised you of who has been drawn there, whether it's from walks of notoriety or maybe I know there's just movie stars and rock stars and presidents and everybody. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's very interesting. Um, you know, a little, little editorial here. Uh, a lot of dignitaries have come here, but uh, sometimes they're the guests of somebody. The ones that I'm interested in, the ones that like it and come anyway. And uh, a line I used to hear quite a bit was when a dignitary would come in and say, well, it's you know, a great pleasure to be here. I've never had the opportunity to come before. And I said, yes, you did. You had the pro- you've had the opportunity every year, but you didn't uh, have somebody paying your way or bringing you in as a, a as a guest. And forgive that being facetious there, but James Garner. Nice. Um, All right. Came probably 30 times. Uh, he had he would occasionally have to miss one, but uh, he over a forty five year period or so he probably went more than thirty times, and I don't know if you remember Kent McCord. Kent McCord, I think, has missed one year since nineteen sixty eight, and he comes and he's very very low key. He's not out there. He doesn't ride in the parade. He's not signing autographs. He just comes and sits in the stands because he likes it. And so uh, to distinguish between the people that, that truly were enthusiasts and the ones who came once and said all the right things, probably James Garner uh, would be way up there. Paul Newman, of course, got um, wow. involved as a, uh, as, a, as a car owner with Carl Haas up in, uh, from Highland, just a little bit north of where you are. And um, then... Oh, Mel Torbe was a huge fan and uh, and came many times. I could go through the whole list, but uh, but it just always abused me when somebody would say, "I've never had the opportunity to be here before." It, yes, you have. You had it every year. Yeah, when you were at the lake or doing something else. Well, but also too is just just kind of the the diversity of of notoriety, right? You'll have at the on that same day in May, you'll have you know presidents and A list movie stars and the biggest yes. musicians and all that kind of stuff there with the backdrop of not only the speedway but all the action. So for all those people that could barely make it to may and now have to make it to august you're you're kind of the the gatekeeper of of what can help them kind of make it through and this is really fascinating stuff so let's talk a little bit about the online archive i know it's going to be 13 weeks there's going to be different things released but what are people going to get what are people going to see what are they going to be surprised by well i don't know what they're surprised at but uh the the thing is that um 
there's material that I have to, that I've written is up there, but I didn't create the thing. I tell people I'm a historian. I live in the dark ages, and I, I I've gone out on on modern technology, but some uh, some fellows have uh, created this uh, this thing in our an archive, and what they plan to do. Because, uh, uh, boy, it's right for everybody's looking for content. I mean, if you watch TV and it's the 1999 Masters or the Game 6 of the World Series or whatever. And uh, so this is uh, a look back, but they, they've decided to uh, do a decade every Tuesday. And uh, so they just uh, released the uh, the second batch. And there's uh, just highlights from the decade, and then there's some general information about uh, how the place got started. There's like a little mini bio on the four founders. There's all kinds of different things that you can jump to. Uh, There's some iconic photographs, and uh, just to kind of whet your appetite. And and, uh, it's only just really scratching the surface because I think they put up nine iconic photos. Well, in the entire collection when you could get to it, which we really don't have much access to it right now. I think there's like four million images and wow. and it's just fast. And uh so I think the idea is just sort of to uh, tell general stories and, and uh uh the fellows are telling me that the average length of time that somebody stays on it is is like many, many minutes. So they're not just quickly looking at the pictures and going to something else. They're actually reading the stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of the, uh, a lot of the material has appeared in the past. Uh, I mean, they're resurrecting several things that I've written for, for the program over the years. And so it's sort of like getting a, a second go around. But... I've always enjoyed uh, telling anecdotes, and I tell people I'm not a gearhead, and I'm not into controversy, and I don't know much about, you know, uh, turbochargers and, and all this stuff, but I'm interested in the people of the human interest mm-hmm. stories, and uh, and as, a, as I, I just want to jump in here and to give uh, a salute to WGN again, I mean, radio was king. And uh, when much of the popularity, I mean, radio wasn't even in existence uh, as we know it when the race started. But certainly through the 30s and 40s and the 50s, probably the 50s the most, the impact that radio had and the fact that it popularized the event, and especially in the in the 50s and the 60s, when there were so many people overseas in the service that could tune into the Armed Forces Network and hear the race on the radio. Just radio just had a huge impact. That's great to hear the power of radio. We know that, of course, here at WGN, we reached 38 states in Canada at night, so it would have been a, a vast listening audience that would have been able to kind of get in on some of that excitement. And mm-hmm. and you bring it up on the history side of it, and we'll, we'll get that, that website, is that that Indianapolis Motor Speedway is so much more than just the stats. You talk about people kind of interacting with the things online, and it is more than just, okay, well, who won here? You're trying to find out a fact there. There are so many stories that have so much more to them than just, you know, the actual results on the track. And, oh, yes. Uh, I always say the box score doesn't tell the story. It does. And I've been blessed personally to have been around a while and being befriended by the participants. And uh, when I first showed up um, a long time ago, uh, you know, there was pre 
World War One uh, participants still around. I mean, I've spent time with Ray Haroon, who won the race in 1911. <laughs> I was just a kid, and he was this elderly gentleman, and uh, he. I was able to visit him several times, and he taught me all kinds of stuff firsthand. I've been just being blessed. I just love the stories about the people. To let the listeners know we're talking with Donald Davidson. He is the historian for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And so the the website where people can get the information and kind of get on there, of course, there's going to be new stuff over the course of the 13 weeks as they kind of tackle each decade with things. But we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com with that. So we'll have links for it. Last thing, and this is one of the things, is I don't think that there's a better person to be the historian and sharing and kind of that archive, that repository for all of that, the enthusiasm and, and the passion and all the information on those stories. One of the other things that I think is unique about Indianapolis is that, and you mentioned talking with some of the participants in the in the original, you know, winners of the race and things like that. Is that outside of having fans and, and a fan base that re- just reveres the facility and their times and memories that are there? Is that the participants themselves, the people who've won it, are sometimes the best ambassadors because, and not just because, hey, I won, I was successful. You know, Mario Andretti has won a lot of races in a lot of different yeah. places. But he gets it, and and everyone else gets it too. There is this this respect for what it is and what it means, yeah. and I I think that is tremendous. And as Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I think goes into a new a new era with new new ownership, maybe new activities, maybe new things happening there. I know there's a lot of buzz and excitement. What are your thoughts, Donald Davidson? About it's always talking about the history and the past. What are your thoughts if you could look into that crystal ball for the future? Well, um, I don't, I don't do the future, but uh, <laughs> uh, picking it. up on something that you've said, that the number of drivers that come back every year, and they're welcomed, by the way, and this is something astonishing. Sometimes in, in, they have an autograph session on the afternoon before the race, and it's for it's for anybody who drove in the race, anybody who drove in the race, and. They probably, oh, and sometimes we've had 100 people show up. And I think typically it's probably 60 to 70 people that just drove in the race one time. And those are the people that the autograph seekers want because they, they've got Mario and, and they've got Foyt and, and uh, they've got Elio Castroneves. They need the guy that ran once in 1978 and finished 33rd, and I'm just doing a hypothetical. But these fellows show up, and they, 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 they uh, the, the, the winners uh, typically, well, a lot of them are still involved with teams and so forth. But if you want to, the rank and file, for want of a better term, they show up on their at their own expense, and they got a credential for them and 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 their spouse. But they make their way here, and they take care of their own lodging to sit out there and sign autographs for nothing. And is there another faction of motorsport or any sport in the world, and I don't want to get myself in trouble and mention the team, but think of a sporting organization, and the the invitation goes out that we'd like for you to come here and pay your own way and take care of your own lodgings to come here and sign autographs for a couple of hours. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't pay anything. Oh, man. How many people do you think would do that? But the drivers do that because they love it. 
and they uh, some of them that were never quite in the limelight, but they did drive in the 500 once, and they'll say it changed their life. They sign autographs, and they're having as much fun as the people who are getting the autographs. And I don't, I don't know. There's another situation in in the world where where that happens. Yeah. Given you know the the red carpet treatment when they're here. And it's just a great feeling of of camaraderie amongst the drivers because they're all from different decades, and yet they all share this common bond that they drove in the 500. Discuss it amongst themselves, and the fans appreciate what they did. But the only people that really know what it's like is the people that did it. Any piece that you can have of that, it's a little mini fraction, just a just a morsel of immortality. This is so funny that you say that because I had never considered that. Oftentimes, we'll talk with people who've who've won it, right, and it changes their lives. It transforms them immediately, and for the rest of their their life in public, they are introduced as an Indianapolis 500 winner. But to think that even for people who've I'm sure, right, when you think about it, even if you you raced in it once and you got 25th and then that's still, that is still, it transforms, you know, who you are too. And of course, if that's your chosen vocation, it's it's a big deal. And it, it's it a big a difference. Yeah. I don't know how many fellows have told me. I mean, it wasn't, they, they want, there wasn't a fan that got out of the grandstands and drove in the race. These are the people that drove for years in different disciplines. But but uh, Indianapolis, you know, they were able to make it. They drove in it once and finished 25th. It makes a difference. It, I don't know how many fellows have told me that. It, the importance for them personally in their careers, and of course for all those fans through all those decades, cannot be overstated. For those people who want to get a little bit of something on the online archive that has been curated by Donald Davidson, it is going to be there. We're going to have the link up at WGNRadio.com as well for people who want to get information. Get in there. 13 weeks of of content highlighting different decades as we lead up into what will be, hopefully, the next Indianapolis 500 coming up in August. So, Donald, I can't thank you enough for sharing all this stuff, reminding of us of our uh, of our DNA that we share with Indy and WGN. And thanks for jumping on the show today. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you because uh, you know you've uh, several things that you said. By golly, you get it, and I appreciate that. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you, high atop Chicago, in the Skyline Studio, and honored to have on the line with us one of the leading and most influential voices in wine, calling us from Germany's Moselle region and the vineyard that has been in his family's name for over two hundred years. The one and only Dr. Ernst Lohsen. Welcome to WGN. Yes, hello. How you guys doing? We're doing okay. Well, I mean, in the midst of uh, of an apocalyptic pandemic, we're doing as best as we can, and we're making our way through it, due in no small part to the help of uh, of uh, of you, some of the wine, some of the things that you're doing. I-, I wanted to ask you, when wine enthusiasts think 
at least at first blush of wine and they think of some of the more uh, either popular or prominent wine regions you think of california or you think of france or you think of maybe even australia or some of these other places but you don't always think of germany even though germany has been one of those top wine producers and and some of those best vintages forever so if you could educate our listeners all 38 states in canada of us uh here tonight a little bit about germany and and mosel region and the region where your vineyard is yes well it is you are absolutely right it's basically sad that people don't really um you know associate germany with wine growing or being a great wine-producing country. People know all our cars, you know, yes. or they know <laughs> yes, yes. beer and Wurst, you know, and Stein, but uh, they don't associate it with wine. But Germany has a very long tradition of wine growing. It was basically the Romans 2,000 years ago, which brought wine growing to our area. And here in the Mosul, we are the oldest wine growing area of Germany with more than 2,000 years of wine growing tradition. And it is even in a vineyard of us, and one of our vineyards, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, they found an old Roman press house, which is the oldest Roman press house they found in Germany. So 2,000 years old. So from that point of view, we have a long tradition. And if people come to this area and have a lot of visitors coming from all over, um, and they always say, my God, it's so beautiful here. It's very steep slopes. It's a, you know, a beautiful valley, river. Uh, landscape, you know, no industry, pure nature. And all everybody, if I have visitors coming from the U.S. or from all over the world, they say, my God, we never thought that it is so beautiful here, you know. And, man, there's nobody rise about it, you know. From that point of view, it's worth to come. <laughs> oh, well, forget about that because now the word is out on the street. You know, the, the reach of, of what it is that we're doing here and that there are so many wine enthusiasts in America that are excited to know all about wine, even all about wine in certain areas that have been around for a long time. One of the things that I saw in some of the pictures and I got to see the seminar that you guys did a couple days ago is and you talked about that Roman influence and it's all over the place in so many different areas and walks of life is, and you mentioned the slopes. They're more like cliffs doctor, because it is, yes. <laughs> you have to be very yes. ambitious to, to grow wine there. They're insanely steep. These vineyards, you know, insanely steep, but you know what it is? The Romans already found out that the best wine are grown in soils, which are extremely poor where you can't grow anything else, you know, either trees or oil trees, you know, nut trees. And there you can also grow wine. And the wine is so much better if you uh, grow it in uh, soils which are totally unfertile, you know. If you grow wine in fertile soils where you do weed or corn, that doesn't make great wines. And that's the reason we grow our wines in in the very steep slopes, stony, slate soils, you know, and, and cliff soils. I just bought... Two months ago, the steepest vineyard in the world, you know? In, <laughs> I mean, it's insane. If you go there, what? that is crazy. It's 128 you know, percent steepness. Crazy. Oh. Other people would do mountain climbing there. Well, uh, no, I'm curious. <laughs> this, wine. 
this is a crazy question. So much about wine is is tradition. Of course, you can't get older on the tradition than some of the ways that the Romans have set it up with technology. You know, and you're one of those cutting edge guys. We'll talk about the collaboration with Cooper's Hawk in just a couple of minutes. Has there ever been thought in some of those areas? This is just a crazy question to utilize drones to do some of the things, maybe for some of the fertilizer or some of the watering, maybe use some of, you know, the, the drones, you know, where those little mini kind of robot airplanes can help you with the uh, with the growing. Well, I mean, we have now, I mean, that is the good thing that technology is going on. And there are, I mean, I tell you, when I started 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was 100% handwork. It was so labor intense to work these vineyards now. But nowadays, we have certain technology like little crawlers, you know, on a vinge, which can help at least to, to tie up things in the vineyard. In the old days, we had to slip everything on our shoulders into the vineyard and to slip it out of the vineyard. Lots of when you're having, you know, 100 pounds on your shoulder yeah. and going a steep vineyard up, you can tell, I, mean, I tell you, this is exhausting. Now we have little crawlers, which at least transport. It is still exhausting in comparison to vineyards in California, or we have a winery in Oregon that is still much easier. But there are now little machines, which is a huge huge um, um, uh, fortune um, against 20, 30 years ago. It helps. It helps. Well, you've always been on the cutting edge, 200 years as far as the vineyard being in the family. But yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of tradition there, obviously. But even when you came in and took over in 1988, you immediately you know, started trying to change things and modernize things and things that I think were really ahead of their time as far as even familiarity or even popularity, whether it was with, you know, organic fertilizers. Yeah, no. You changed a lot. Yes. Yeah, but, you know, the funny thing is what I changed was basically only to go back to the tradition, you know. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we had been, we thought all, we have to be extremely innovative. You know, my, my father in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I mean, the older schools, they said, oh, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do fertilize, you have to do new clones, you have to do this and that. And so everybody had been trusting them and, and had been thought they're very innovative. What I did when I took over, very simple. I have been going back to the winemaking and to the tradition of my great-great-grandfather. And you know why? Because 120 years ago, I thought myself, 120 years ago, the reasoning from Ryan and Mosel had been the most expensive wines in the world. They had been two times more expensive as Chateau Latour, first growth clarets, you know. And I said, so these people must have done something right, you know, 120 years ago, you know. Because now we don't have these prices anymore. Nobody wants to drink Riesling. And I thought, let's go back to the winemaking, to the tradition, as my great-grandfather did it between 1880 and 1930. And let's see. No fertilizers, you know, reduced yields, you know, work with the nature, you know, making, give the wine the time in the barrel again, no filtration, all these kind of things, you know. Get, go back to the old times and let the wine ripen in the barrel as they want to do it, and don't force them, you know, to go faster and faster, younger and younger. And, you know, and that was a huge success, you know. Uh. People now see, I mean, God, how great the wines used to be. I make wines as it was 120 years ago, and the people now say, oh, my God, that, that is so great. 
you these these old people knew what they did. You know? <laughs> they should they should respect them. Oh, it's so crazy! You because in my mind I'm thinking, wow, this is so cutting edge and modern, of course. But it's really back to the basics that led to that great foundation that you had in the first place. Now on the educational side, and you come from a long line of doctors, so there was a lot of learning going into all of that kind of stuff. Is that part of? And here's what you think about it: is you go back, it's not broke, don't fix it. So much tradition, the greatest Rieslings in the world. You're going back to all of that history. But is that whole kind of just, I think, learning in your DNA, is that what caused you to try to travel around the world to all these different wine regions and learn about all different kinds of wine from all over? Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it's learning by doing, you know. And the funny thing that, the, I mean, I have been only going back to the history, you know. But the funny thing, the people thought, oh, this is crazy what this guy is doing. What is he doing? <laughs> only because people forgot the history. Right. People forgot and ignores the history. They didn't know what the people did 120 years ago. And then they think, oh, this is innovative. You know, I have been only reading, my grandfather has a, a library of 10,000 books, you know, with old winemaking books from 1817 and so. I have been reading these books and I, was, I said, huh, holy moly, what these guys did there. It's super interesting, you know. Let's try it, you know. Let's do it. And the result, and that is learning by doing. Nobody knew how the wines tasted in these days because they don't exist anymore and so i did it learning by doing doing it and then see and the result was amazing you know and so i'm i'm so proud that i rediscovered it you know and now so many of my colleagues you know they they copy it and say yeah this is a great idea huh. well, well it's not a great idea i do only what my grandfather did well and you've got to give yourself a little bit of credit too and one of the great lines that you have and you always have is a great yeah. wine begins in your head and so there are a lot of things that people can do yes. on the tradition side but also to bring things forward and not only just on what's in the bottle but also just bringing it as a great ambassador not only for germany Mosul, reason riesling right and being that ambassador with america when you think about tradition cooper's hawk has a tradition that has been built up in a very short period of time but has impacted so many people and and brought so many people to the wine world by just being approachable and open and educational and just for enthusiasts so talk Talk a little bit about this new wine that you guys have, Trocken. It is, I think it breaks a lot of the norms, what people may have thought of Riesling, because it is, it is really, it's an everyday, super refreshing wine. It's really special. Yes. I mean, you know, I tell you, I was very glad with these kinds approach me, you know, um, and said, look, we want to do something with you. And these people had also a certain thing in mind, and it is very very good if the people come to you early that you can say, okay, let's do something together because we have to produce the grapes the way, you know. And I mainly I, I also ask them, you, you guys are open to do something traditional, to go for a traditional dry Riesling from the Mosul, then doing some implementing one of these, some of these old winemaking styles of my grandfather, you know, in the old days, you know. And I said, yeah, that's super interesting. Exactly that is what we want to do. It was a beautiful collaboration because a great collaboration works only if you work together, you know. Um, and these people, they have, they, have a, they have a certain idea, you know, what they want to do. And that was, this was to work with these people is always, I mean, fantastic, you know, because you can do something together. We, I, I, I showed them, look, we can do this and that. And so we, we, we introduced some old winemaking techniques by fermenting some uh, full grapes with, with the wine, you know, to give them more structure. That was pretty much also done in the old days, you know, um, to, to keep, I mean, not to ferment only the juice, to keep, 
to keep also 10% of the grapes, you know, in the juice, to ferment the grapes with the juice, you know, to give it more structure, to give it more, you know, um, I mean, mouthfeel and more complexity, you know. And so these guys have been immediately up for these kind of ideas, you know. And I think it's an amazing wine, which we have been um, making together with these guys, you know. It's wonderful, wonderful collaboration. These people, I love these people. Well, and they have so many fans who love them, too, for all those same reasons that you mentioned. And let the listeners know we're talking with the great uh, Dr. Ernst Lohsen, calling us from the Moselle region of Germany, the great uh, winemaking lineage has now, you know, created something brand new, totally different, brand new, and amazing with Cooper's Hawk that reaches, I think their wine club has maybe 500,000 fans that get it uh, every week. They do travel and all that education that goes along with it. But at the DNA, sort of at that ground level, at the core of Cooper's Hawk, and this ties totally in with you, is, is fun. They really, you know, the wine world can get, pretentious and serious at times and some of the personalities can follow that along and it shouldn't be that way right it's all about wine is about bringing people together and you guys coming together talk a little bit about like our mutual friend uh, tim McHenry, like just that personality wise he loves you and what you do and it's really worked out Yes, well, he visited me, and we we came together. We visited the vineyard. He, we, I mean, and we tasted the wine with the food. I showed him the wine. You know, I mean, such a such a brand is always a plan from different components. You know, from soil. This is a typical soil from the area. You know, and as I said, uh, barrels which made in the very traditional style. And so, I think it was a great, great, great visit. A great. You know, I mean, work together, which is very important that somebody is coming over. And thanks God it was before Corona. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so that you work really physically together, you know, that it is not only an idea, you know, and kind of, uh, can you do something for me? No, it was a very a, a physical working together. You know? D- and that, that, is, that made it then, that, that makes all these, these kind of, that makes it so amazing, you know, to that that there is something, you know, they're they're coming also two ideas together, you know? Thousands and thousands and thousands of wine fans are going to be introduced to Trocken uh, as as they visit their Cooper's Hawker on light and online and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was Oh go ahead. I was also very happy that they choose a Trocken. Trocken means dry. You yes. Know? It's a dry version, you know? Because you know that that there was always a reputation of riesling is cheap and sweet. You know, no, it was traditionally dry. No, the tradition was always dry, and the German name is Trocken. So I was especially honored and very happy that the people said, "No, we want to go for this tradition. We want to go for a dry riesling. Mm. We want to introduce to the, pe- the people the riesling as it used to be." You know, it was not historically sweet and cheap. It was historically dry and super expensive, and that was the great <laughs> thing that they immediately said, "Look, we." want to go we don't want to go for mainstream we want to go for the tradition we want to show the people how great a reason can be in the dry style oh no dr lowson i don't want to be your your consultant on the marketing side but dry is great but dry and super expensive might not be the best <laughs> marketing slogan but i know that people are going to love it and of course it is redefined what riesling kind of means and what it is and i think the words are what are are refreshing i think you've said that with this and i don't know it's great with food it really pairs and so let's hear a little bit about that but but also, it's just one of those things that you, I think in one of the seminars, you had mentioned that you can drink trucking to like drink yourself sober, right? Where it's yeah, it's yeah. just, it's more because, refreshing than it is heavy. Yes, because it is a grape variety. Riesling is a grape variety, which doesn't need to be high in alcohol. It performs with low alcohol, you know? You can make a great dry wine with 11.5, 12% alcohol, you know? 
And it is perfect. It's beautiful. It's versatile. And it doesn't mean dry. It doesn't mean it is austere. A Riesling dry, even with low alcohol, can be fruit-driven, you know. It can have wonderful stone fruit. It can be beautiful, you know, and round and so, you know. And this is, this makes Riesling so magic. It is not high in alcohol. It's versatile. It's still fruit-driven. And that makes it so, 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 I mean, versatile for all kinds of food. I always say, if you don't know what to choose, you know, if you don't know what you want to drink, which wine you want to drink with your food, a dry reasoning, you know, works always. Yeah, and works for, always. for Cooper's Hawk fans, so the soy uh, ginger salmon is great with it. Ellie's chicken piccata. There's so many dishes yeah. uh, that they'll enjoy. We'll have links up at WGNRadio.com all about this and for people to get in on that. And we may even have a bottle you know, for one of the listeners. And you know what? If everybody has the chance, this is for me the most amazing combination with the dry reasoning is ceviche. Ceviche and dry reasoning is for me personally the most, I mean, the most ideal combination. It's so interesting. I recommend to everybody, if you have a ceviche and dry reasoning, try first the reasoning, then taste the ceviche, and then taste the reasoning. There's no other combination where you see how a wine, how much a wine change if you eat a bite of the ceviche, and then drink the wine. How different the wine is then to the wine when you tasted it beforehand. Oh. It's, I mean, it gets so much richer and more, I mean, and more aromatic. It's, it's, it's amazing. For me, I mean, ceviche and dry reasoning. Everybody has to do it. At oh. <laughs> We're going to try that today. So that's a little bit of advice, a little bit. Of, it brings with it all of that history, the tradition, the inspiration, and, of course, uh, the fun that you bring with it, Dr. Lawson, as well. So as we let you go, if there's any way for listeners, is there a website or social media or places where they can keep up with all your adventures? Oh, yes. You go on the drlawson.com you know, website, you know, Dr. Lawson, I mean, put Dr. Lawson on the webpage, our web, uh, on the web, our webpage.com is popping up and there's all these kind of different, you know, ventures we have. We have, we're doing a reasoning in Washington State with Chateau Saint-Michel. We're doing reasoning in Oregon, you know, and we all there introduced this historic winemaking of my grand-grandfather and it's amazing. It also works in the new world, this old historic winemaking. Congratulations with all the with all the success, of course, and the congratulations on the collaboration. Everything that is old is new and amazing again. And so, Dr. Lawson, thanks for, for everything you're doing. Thanks for jumping on the show tonight. Hey, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. And always have a class in Riesling in mind. <laughs> Seven twenty WGN high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, and honored to have best-selling author of the books *Awakened*, *The Brink*, and now *Obliteration*. Millions of fans know and love him as one of the stars of the hit TV show *Impractical Jokers* on True TV, *Misery Index* on TBS, sold-out comedy tours around the country. He is, as we like to say on the show, he's the thinking man's Joker, the one and only, and author James S. Murray. Murray, welcome to WGN. What's happening, Nick? Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it, well, it's great to have. It's always great to have you on. And uh, I, know, but, I love comedians. I love 
compliment on this show. Yeah, well, no, we appreciate it. Chicago loves you too. Now you probably you're at this point in your, your kind of journey through stardom. I'm not sure Mer, you know, you've always been one of the more grounded people, more humble. You guys are all humble really, but are you into that jaded and, and cynical standpoint in your career yet where you're just dismissive of your, of your legions of fans? No, no, man. I, I, get, <laughs> I get to make my best friends laugh for a living. I, I get to embarrass my best friends on boat for a living. That's pretty good, man. That doesn't get old. I don't get tired of that ever. <laughs> you, you know what? Now, here's the thing, too, is that Jokers, as much as that is how people identify you, and rightly so, it's been such a huge hit, but it doesn't necessarily define you. It never did. And so with the books, you know, to have it, it was, you know, originally a multi-book series. You know, you haven't always hit home runs with everything coming up in the career, right? It just depends on the on the nature of who's looking at it and, you know, the climate and all that kind of stuff. Was there any thought, like, making it a multi kind of series book that if awakened wasn't like the huge hit that it was that the rest of the story might not be told doing it in three parts i i mean i wrote the first book awakened 16 years ago long before jokers and i couldn't get anybody to read it you know and i had to get on tv and and our amazing fans and how supportive they are of everything we do uh i was able to get harper collins to buy the the book and it did really well and hit like number one on yeah. the case sunday times and all sorts of bestsellers around the world and uh and then they bought the trilogy. So, so the new one is Obliteration. You don't have to have read the first two books to know what happens in Obliteration. We catch you right up. It is awesome. It's like, it really is kind of like a dream come true, first of all, to, to pull off a trilogy. It's really hard, you know? And, uh, and I think we did it, man. I think we stuck the land. It's exciting, fast-paced, action-packed. It's like the perfect summer reading you'll ever have now the, the topic you know science fiction alien you know apocalypse it's always cool it's a fascinating uh topic but here's this and outside of the stardom because there's some that can be attached You're like oh well that's Murray. we love everything he does but as a book it has been acclaimed you know uh, high praise from people like brad Meltzer, who we love like what does it feel like to actually be I mean, you can't, whatever the guys say and whatever they may, you know, whatever, like you're a legitimate author with actual best-selling books that stand on their own. Uh, that's pretty cool, man. I always dreamt of doing it, you know, but we, the guys and I have failed so much more in our careers than we succeeded, you know, uh, like it took us 11 years to get on TV, you know, and, and, and we, I guess what we're saying is like being hard at stuff and failing until I succeed and none of this, none of it would be possible without our fan base and how supportive they are, you know? So like all these good things that happen, like our tour and these books and South stand up and Q's beer company and Joe's charity work, all these amazing things are entirely because of our fan base and how, how supportive they are of us. So has that been part of it is where, you know, you guys sit back and especially at times like this, when there's a lot of things that you can't do, you know, as far as the touring and the appearance where you've had maybe moments during this pandemic time to kind of sit back and say, you know what, we've achieved a level of success. And you've mentioned it where you've got fans who understand who you guys are individually, what it is that you guys can do, where you've been able to say, you know, I always wanted to do blank. Is that what have all you guys been doing that? I think so. I mean, we, we've done a couple of things while on lockdown. You know, we created a new show called Impractical Jokers Dinner Party, which is the guys and I having to get Zoom. It airs on Thursday nights. It is so much fun. Uh, it's like hanging out with the guys and I in our homes, you know, on TV. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, of course, we have the Misery Index on, on TBS. And we're, we're going to start back into production on Jokers real soon. So we're excited for that. But yeah, I've been, you know, writing books. I'm, I'm literally have a book in front of me right now a new one that comes out in October called Don't Move. Whoa. And we're writing another one, comes out next April, uh, called The Stowaway. 
So I've been doing a lot of that. I've been planning my wedding. Man. <laughs> I get married in uh, in less than two months. So. Well, okay. Well, congrats. Congratulate. Now, how are you going to do that? So we've got our niece is, is getting married. She had it planned for, you know, a year or so, but now because of the pandemic, everything's been pared down. So it went from 200 people to like 40 people. And now it's all different. Have you, because of the obvious, you know, weight and, and power of your success, are you able to just, you know, wash away the, the rules and regulate? Are you guys going to have like a, a cool big wedding or is it going to be more intimate friends, family, just you guys? We, we, we cut the list into a third. So we, we originally had like, like close to 300 people. Now it's at barely a hundred uh, and we'll see how many of those actually come, but the invites literally went out this week. Uh, but yeah, so I got to, I got to get rid of all the BS, like fourth and fifth cousins. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's you know the what? greatest excuse. It pretty good. I mean, it, yeah. right, it's like to keep you safe, man. It's not because you're not important. You are, uh, got, it, it, you know, Fifth cousin, you know, cousin Catherine, who I've never met. I'm sorry. It's just to keep you and your family safe. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're doing the people's work. Because uh, you wanted to ask, too, is that is like when it comes to some of the projects and, and things that you're doing for years before Impractical Jokers and all that kind of success, you were always writing. You were always like pitching shows. And of course, you know, from the show, we've, you know, have some of those projects have been highlighted like like damned right you know that's the kind of thing that may not happen but one of the things that was actually part of like a joke at your expense was i can't remember the name of it but it was a it was a game show concept when i first saw it, i'm like you know that actually would would work it was like monumental challenge or something right where it was my like, friend let me tell you did the guys make fun of me on the tv show i used to work in tv development for a long time for 10 years i was the head of development for the company that makes jokers. And that's how we sold jokers through my job. I pitched it and <laughs> nice. sold it, right? So I will tell you, one day I'm going to sell that show, Monumental Challenge, because to, it, is, it holds the record still to this day as being the only TV show at that company that we've developed that has gone to Greenlight Meeting at four different networks. <sighs> Meaning that four different networks, it got right to the top with budget and schedule submitted and was at the Greenlight Meeting and didn't go to series. Four times. Four different networks. And, and, and that means we're awfully close. Well, and I think, too, it, it just stands on its own. Outside of all the all the great joking and the fun that we have with it, it just makes sense. I think it would work. Now, here, we want to, of course, let the listeners know we're talking with James S. Murray, acclaimed best-selling international author and, of course, uh, the thinking man's joker, Murr. Is, that, is, is there any thought to, like being more of like a Merv Griffin type, because I think at some point, and you can let the listeners know at what point when you were actually filming jokers, did it really become untenable? Maybe three out of four people that were there, like actually recognize you where you have to kind of extend it out. So maybe this is a game show. Maybe you're not in it, right? You just are the one kind of running it. Uh, yeah, but I, I was in the uh, pilot episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was this is before jokers, but I was in the pilot episode. Uh, and I think one day I will be in the series of it when long, many years after Joker's ends, I could see myself going back to this show. <laughs> well, the writing is something The TV pitching is one thing, certainly got experience, but the writing is something that you're doing and doing at a high level. We brought up a minute ago about the wedding, you know, and in that kind of sense, you know, you're also a romantic guy, obviously have to at some point. So the alien apocalypse and, you know, just the destruction of the planet and all that kind of stuff in the first series. Do you have sort of a, a Nicholas Sparks side to you? Are we going to see sort of a, a romantic book from uh, from a James S. Murray? Uh, you know, like a love story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I will tell you. There is a fair amount of fan fiction, like romantic fan fiction on the internet about impractical jokers. And if you haven't had the chance, I highly encourage you to seek it out and find it on Google. It is hysterically funny. It usually winds up being like Sal and me end up falling in love or something like that. <laughs> so funny. Like, and, and the, the characters they write for us are hysterical. 
So if you want some good romantic comedy, look up fan fiction for impractical jokers. Will I ever write uh, a rom-com one day? Maybe we'll see for now. I'm sticking with thrillers and horror. (laughs) Well, for the people who get all of their information and their trusted source for knowledge is Wikipedia. It actually still says that you're married to Sal's sister. So, (laughs) and I guess technically you say that (laughs) (laughs) if you had to explain it. So going forward, is there any thoughts to, because you're always thinking a few, you know, steps ahead. Like this book is out highly acclaimed. It's going to be, you know, probably the biggest seller based on the success of the past ones. You guys have already done a movie. Not to say it has to be a Joker's movie, but for maybe a movie around the books. I mean, that whole genre with the you know the aliens and you know the Earth and you know, all that stuff. Not only relevant because we're living in sort of an apocalyptic situation today, but in general, that style of movie is is really popular. Any thoughts? Are you guys planning a movie for the books? That 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 is always the plan. Literally, literally yesterday afternoon, we had a conference call developing uh, "Don't Move," which is the new thriller that comes out in October developing it as a movie, no joke, and pitching and selling it as a movie. So that is always the plan. And we write the books like Obliteration, Don't Move. These books are highly, highly visual. They read like an action movie. Like it's the kind of book you can't put down. You flip from page to page to page, and it just sucks you right in. And you just are invested in the characters. The story is relentless and compelling and interesting. And uh, it's perfect to be adapted into a movie. And now you have the support and the budget behind it, so you're not left like you were with Damned, right? You just you only had one car to sell in order to make the movie. Now you can do all the special effects. You can have cameos by famous actors. You could do it all. You know, the uh, Joker's movie was an interesting test of all that. Uh, I, I hope you guys have seen it. Before. Yeah, of course. Uh, rent it or download it now. I, I think we were actually the, <laughs> somebody was telling me the other day. Uh, I think we were the last movie to come out in theaters before the theater shut down. Yeah. Um, and we were only in theaters for like two weeks before everything shut. So there is a chance because of forfeit that we will be the highest grossing comedy of 2012. <laughs> Who cares? That- <laughs> and also there's, there's a chance that come the Academy Awards in a normal year, we would never, ever, ever win an Academy Award. <laughs> but since we're the last, since, we came out of February and, and everything was shut down. We might win oh my gosh. best comedy, best film, best foreign film, best animated feature, best actor, best support. Who knows? <laughs> we might win the whole Academy Award. So are you already planning? Obviously, you guys, especially Joe with the pets and everything, you got to make a social difference. Are you already planning your speech out You know, you, you know, for the to make that impactful social statement from the platform of the Jokers? I- I have not started writing that, nor will I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to tell you, and one of the last things is that our, you know, our family, we watch the shows. Obviously, you know that we've seen the the live performances and we watch the movies. We'd buy a Murr action figure if it was available. And so are you are you surprised like with all of the stuff? I'm sure some of the, the people that are buying the books and, and, and kind of bring to the success. I'm sure many of them are impractical Joker fans. There may be a time Mur, where you kind of transcend into Paul Newman territory where people just think of you as the salad dressing guy. They think of you only as an author and not necessarily yeah. the impractical jokers. But are you surprised as far as just the, the range of people who love what it is you guys do? Uh, there's so many parts of that question I want to talk about. Do you know, by the way, do you have do you know how much money Paul Newman has donated to charity because of the salad dressing, all the brands that, that his corporation owns? It's lots. I mean, millions and millions and millions. It, it right? is, you're ready for this? It's over half a billion dollars Whoa. since the, its inception whenever he started it like 30 years ago. Isn't that crazy? We, we were just looking. It's, it's my favorite dressing. I was just looking up the stats <laughs> literally about three weeks ago. Over half a billion dollars. It, it's crazy, right? Well, Anyways. 
well, and the impact that he had with it, because I have talked to some people who are a little bit younger, maybe not as familiar with his acting career, legendary actor, and they only, and this is legitimate, and I was shocked, had to step back, that they only knew him as the salad dressing guy. The salad dressing guy. There you go. If I can, you know, I wonder what they'll think of me as, the the, the bald guy, no. <laughs> the ferret tattoo, the, oh my gosh. the guy that got thrown out of an airplane, I don't know, the guy with the... Yeah, the, the driver's license with shaped off the, the author the, the, guy. I don't know. Pet cremation, grandparent divorce advocate. You never know. Like, <laughs> well, well, no, but so the many guy. I don't know. <laughs> well, I was I was thinking more from as like a, as your momentarily career consultant. I was thinking of international best selling author, right? And they're like, oh yeah, but he also has a sense of humor. I did not know that. And they would say, you know what? As uh, <laughs> as Walt Whitman once said, I am large. I contain multitudes. So there you go. That's right. One thing to not define you so for as we let you go for people want to keep up with all your adventures obviously all those different ways that they can enjoy what it is that you and you guys do on tv for the bookstores your local bookstore when they open and until then amazon will drop it off to you on social media mer where can people uh, keep up with you you know uh go pick up obliteration you will not be disappointed it'll be the, the best summer reading you'll ever have uh, obliteration anywhere books are sold online uh and uh, of course you can pre-order don't move our new thriller coming out uh, this fall uh, anywhere books are sold as well. James S. Murray, the one and only Murr from Impractical Jokers and, of course, behind all those best-selling books. Thanks for everything that you're doing. Thanks for jumping on the show today. You got it. Thanks for having me.